everybody makes their own peace with these things. I mean, people like Howard Zinn and uh, and and some others who are very very were very courageous. Noam Chomsky, uh, all cited with him being a lone nut on the Kennedy assassination, and I believe either they didn't know and they didn't want to look into it, or they felt that life was hard enough for them, being the brave people that they are, and they simply couldn't take everything on. I, I get the same thing where people believe that there's more to the 9-11 story, and they want to know why I won't uh, expose the truth there. Well, I don't know what the truth is. I, I think there are a lot of questions about what happened there and what we know, but I'm not willing to go where a lot of people go where they have absolute certainty of what happened. The whole nature of being a good journalist is that you're totally agnostic about everything. Right. You refuse you refuse to take sides on anything or to make a statement or accept somebody else's statement right. until you have a chance to in an incredibly detailed way go through everything. Right. And I that think, takes years. Right. You are a real journalist. Graduate you went to Columbia School of Journalism? I did, yeah. You teach at Columbia School of Journalism? I, I, I have, not currently, but right. I had the past years, yeah. And so when this is the problem with the way Americans have been trained to read the news, when you ask questions about 9-11, when you point out the inconsistencies, people will say to you, what are you, what are you saying? What are you saying? To which I reply, no, 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 no. What are you not saying? In other words, answer my questions. Explain why the Bin Laden family was flown out. Like nobody was flying out on 9-11 but the Bin Laden family. What are you saying by asking that question? What are you saying, what are you not saying by, answer, by not answering that question? That's all journalism is. You don't have to have a grand unifying theory to explain the Kennedy assassination, contradict 9-11. Journalism is just raising questions that are not being answered. But the American people don't understand that. They think there's an agenda and you're trying to say something. No, you're trying to find out what people aren't saying. That's it. Well, that's right. And when I call people to interview them, a lot of them say, "What's your angle? What do you right. what do you, What do you think? What are you trying to get at?" You know. And I try to say I'm agnostic. Uh, I know you've got another guest here. I want to. Well, you should do his show. I book. I don't book his show, but I can sometimes. Uh, you, uh, Professor Ben Burgess, do you know Russ Baker? I do not. Well, you should have him on the show. He would make good. a great guest for you. He really would. And well, just to, well, just to say, uh, uh, happy to do other shows. Uh, happy to talk about these issues. Uh, the, the main thing I wanted to say was uh, when I so much as spoke about 9/11, just to say there were a lot of unanswered questions. I then was attacked on Wikipedia by unknown individuals, and to this very day, they attack me. They put in uh, pejorative stuff, just simply saying that I spoke at a conference on that topic. And I can tell you that people will cancel me for that. That's the society that we live in. You really cannot ask questions about anything. But I understand now, because things have gotten so out of control uh, over uh, vaccines and COVID and everything else, everything's all mixed together now. Mm -hmm. And so people, in the second anyone hears anything that is slightly off from the sort of pack, uh, a state 
statement of the week, uh, they immediately think, well, that person's got to be a nut or something like that. And this is very, very dangerous because when you live in a society where orthodoxies dominate everything and it's not possible to have a conversation and to wonder about things, uh, we are indeed in real trouble. Uh, that's that's why I started Who, What, Why. Just move to wrap up here and let your guests go. Uh, I, I uh, started whowhatwhy.org. It's a nonprofit news organization. We are uh, 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 deep diggers. We start in agnostic about everything, very proud of that. Uh, and everything we do, no ads, no paywalls, everything is just supported by the public. Uh, and we're, we're uh, eager to go into a new year and to tackle a lot of other exciting topics. We're always open to hearing from folks about anything they think we ought to be looking at. Right, and you're covering what the mainstream media doesn't really cover, like the Pandora Papers, Ukraine, the myth of, well, I won't say, I won't go that far. Well, I, I, would say, I would say we're covering a lot, of, a lot of the same issues, but we're trying to look at them in a new way. Yeah. We're also looking at issues they won't cover. Uh, when we heard that Jeffrey Epstein killed himself, our first question was, well, why would he do that? Right. And and how was that possible with cameras there and, and close supervision that he was a, even able to get those implements? The second you even asked that, the media immediately, immediately announced uh, the government has determined that he killed himself, and that's the end of it. And none of them bothered to look. The only one that did actually was 60 Minutes, of all, actually had uh, a session where they – questioned whether this story had been told. But uh, that's what we do. We go in with true journalism and true agnosticism, and we will look at anything that seems important to us. Citizen-supported journalism, no ads. Uh, there are no ads. No ads. Right. Yeah. Imagine that. No advertising. Russ Baker, how do people follow you on Twitter? Oh, it's uh, Real Russ Baker. That's my personal one. There's also one for Who, What, Why. Go to whowhatwhy.org and donate. You know, if you're looking for, if you have some extra cash, citizen-supported journalism, no advertising over at Who, What, Why. It doesn't get any purer than whowhatwhy.org. Go there, look at it, read it every day. And, of course, Family of Secrets, buy it, please. Buy the book. And if you don't enjoy it, I'll reimburse you. Will you come back? There's so much to touch touch upon. Oh, I always enjoy talking to you, David, yeah. anytime. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm going to pass uh, Professor Ben Burgess uh, your information. Joining us is Professor Ben Burgess. He is the host of Give Them an Argument. And he is author of a new book, uh, Christopher Hitchens, on, on the life of Christopher Hitchens. It comes out in January. Ethan, who's coming up later, read the book and is could not stop praising it. And you are where are you coming from today? I'm getting Michigan. you're coming from Michigan. Yeah. I'm getting a little organized here, so stand stand stay with me for one quick second. The Kennedy assassination. Okay. Do you think there was a conspiracy? Um, maybe. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to say. Um, uh, I, I think that I find it a little implausible that, like, certainly on some kind of high level, like the CIA or 
you know, sort of forces deep within the government actually wanted Kennedy gone. I, I, I don't, I just don't think that he actually stood for anything that was very much of a threat to them. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not to say that it's out of the question that, um, you know, I mean, on the lower levels, you know, people talk about like the CIA and the mafia and the Cubans as if these are three different entities. And, and in practice, I think there's a lot of overlap and, you know, could, could you have had, Multiple people who, for whatever reason, there were conspiracy theorists, you know, who, you know, many right-wingers hated Kennedy for various weird reasons, um, you know, could have, uh, could have was killed, maybe, right? I, I also think I'm not ready to rule out that, like, it, it, it actually could have just been, uh, Oswald. I, I have to say, I mean, I remember when I was, um, you know, like, I don't know, I guess I was 21 on 9-11, so sometime before that, right, you know, like thinking, you know, watching the Oliver Stone JFK movie and and thinking it's like, oh, yeah, a lot of this looks like, you know, it doesn't add up, the, you know, magic bullet, all this stuff. And then I remember after 9-11 when I started seeing uh, people who are, who are 9-11 truthers, like real serious 9-11 truthers uh, who, you know, people who said use a controlled demolition, stuff like this, and right. they give their explanations. Um you know, it, it really struck me at the time. It was like, wait, what? You're a structural engineer now? I mean, like right. everybody's a structural engineer now. You know, like, like, like that's. Uh, I always, you know, I, I always love the people who say uh, buildings that large don't fall that way. And I always ask, really, how many buildings that large have you seen fall? Right, right, exactly. It's like based on my personal math, I don't right. think that's how. It's like, okay, come on, buddy. And then, so like that kind of made me question what I thought earlier about the JFK case. It's like, okay, do I actually know more about ballistics than I do about structural engineering? No, I really don't. Right, you know. So, right. uh, so I'm not, you know. So as far as the physical evidence goes, I'm a little agnostic about it. But but I'm I'm wary of of jumping to the conclusion that's true. I will say, by the way. Um, the uh, the one of my all-time favorite uh, Christopher Hitchens lines. I was just going to ask uh, you about that. Uh, was uh, when he said, uh, "Like everyone of my generation, I can remember where I was uh, the day that uh, John F. Kennedy almost killed me, uh, meaning the Bay of Pigs." Right. So you are the author of Christopher. You're the author of Christopher Hitchens, what he got right, how he went wrong, and why. Or not the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know what I mean? But yes, yeah, sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Well, but actually, he almost killed us both. I mean, actually, both. I mean, Bay, I mean, Bay of Pigs. He sh- he should have gone further and just vetoed it happening at all. But I mean, I, I guess to be fair, you know, he didn't. Uh, you know, he didn't give the like insane right wing generals what they wanted there. But you know, but the, the Cuban Missile Crisis is what he was talking about. And the the joke does make more sense in that context. I I messed it up. But anyway, I'm sorry. I interrupted your flow. So. The new book is Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. He was uh, a thinker, a writer, uh, a pundit, a journalist, kind of. Mm -hmm. Did he have unanswered questions about 9-11? Because he changed. Mm 9-11 changed Christopher Hitchens. So did he have... Yeah, I, I I think no, right? I mean, I I I think he definitely assumes that uh, that you know nine eleven, um, you know, certainly as far as the sort of um, you know who did it and why question goes, right? I mean, I I think he assumes that um, that uh, that it, it was 
you know, it was bin Laden, you know, for all the reasons, you know, that, that we that we all normally think. And, and I don't think, um, you know, I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think he would have come to the conclusions that, that he did politically if, if he didn't think that. Now, I will say that uh, it doesn't necessarily work the other way around, right? I mean, just because you think that doesn't mean that you're going to come to those political conclusions. I mean, you know, I thought that, and I, I still do, you know. I mean, I, 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 st- I still think that it's overwhelmingly likely, right, you know, that, that it really was al-Qaeda and it really was, you know, all that, right? But um, Well, looking back... But, but, I mean, I was I was still very opposed to the war in Afghanistan, et cetera, because I, I, I always thought that, like, even if you believe that, you know, that doesn't get you very far towards in the direction of saying that we should be bombing and invading and occupying, you know, entire countries in response to this. Right. Let me just say up front, I'm not a 9-11 truther. I just feel there are unanswered questions that don't, that should just be answered. Who, who was it that called you the more, you know, on September 10th and told you not to go to the tower and stuff like that? APAC. Yeah. I got a letter okay. from uh, yeah. APAC. Stay, stay away from the towers. Uh, not, I gotta be careful these days. People don't understand, uh, sarcasm or irony or whatever. But if George Bush lied about Saddam Hussein, yeah, knew that Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9 11, he knew there were no weapons of mass destruction, maybe. He lied about Mullah Umar and the Taliban being behind 9-11. Why would he stop with 9-11? In other words, why why do we assume he's telling the truth about who orchestrated 9-11? Why, why I mean, should we believe I, I, him there? I certainly think I certainly think that uh, that the assumption that George W. Bush of George W. Bush's honesty, you know, I mean, if if that were the only reason to think that it really was, you know, Al Qaeda, really was using planes, etc., then then I would agree that that would be a pretty lousy reason to, uh, right. to think so. Uh, I, I have to say, my inclination is to say that even. Even completely suspending that premise, right? Say, okay, look, George W. Bush obviously would have no compunction whatsoever about being dishonest about this. Um, even if, even suspending that assumption, um, is it still the simplest explanation that it probably, you know, really was Al Qaeda and it really was, you know, for using planes and it really was like most of the other things that, you know, truth is question? Yeah, I think it probably is. Like, um, you know, there, there are presumably, like, lots of cases where, uh, you know, nobody is very confident about the honesty of, of governments, but, like, we still think, you know, it's uh, it's improbable that, uh, right. that it's a big, you know, like, that something else happened, right? So, so and, and I'll also say, like, you know, one reason for that uh, is, um, you know, which, again, Sure. Like, I think people who got taken in by Bush's foreign policy, like Hitchens did, thought that. But, you know, I mean, Noam Chomsky is always super dismissive of, of 9-11 truthism, too. Like, you know, and, and I think he probably has good reasons to. And he, and he, point, and he points out that uh, that one of the – that there's a sort of weird inference from uh, there's a government that has something to gain from it to, to they're the ones who did it. I mean, lots of people have something to gain from it. Like, well, lots of governments around the world, you know, gain from it. But, I, I mean, I also think – uh, that, I, you know, 
I wonder if they would have been able to successfully keep it secret uh, for the last the last 20 years. Um, just, just I mean, not that they would try to, but whether they would actually succeed in doing it. Right. I mean, if you if you think about how relatively few years people keep secrets the all the time. People keep secret. That's the. I think that's a myth. I think the mafia has proven that people will obey the vow of Omerta. People do. I mean, people to, keep to, 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 a point, to a point. I mean, an awful lot of mafiosos slipped and told the government everything. You know, when they're when they're arrested, and like certainly the government in in the case of. Um, of stuff that's made up to justify wars, you know, I mean, like, you know, not very many years well, between the Gulf of Tonkin and the Pentagon Papers or, you know, I, or, you know, the, uh, I, I mean, like, think about how much has come out about the maneuverings to, you know, to cherry pick evidence about weapons and Why did they keep, why did, think why about, did, think about Snowden and Assange, you know, like, like I'm not saying that it's 100% certain that it would have come out, but I am not that confident in uh in the in the ability of um you know the ability of the American federal government to keep stuff secret. I, I'm gonna argue with you. You gave me an argument. Sure. Look at the price that Julian Assange is paying for this. Look at uh, Chelsea Manning. Look at the price the messaging you spilled the secrets. There's a price to, to pay. I think we're pretty good at keeping secrets in this country. Uh, Harvey Weinstein, for example. Mm. It was in plain sight that he was a rapist. Mm -hmm. And everybody kept it secret because nobody wanted to be the one who said, who went to the cops. Well, that everybody kept it a secret or nobody went to the cops. Those, those seem like pretty different claims to me. It, uh... It was an open... Like it, it, it seems like there were an awful lot of people telling each other. Um, Look at Jeffrey uh, Epstein. It was an open secret that something was going on, but nobody wanted to pass judgment. So you go to his apartment, you see a foot massage, you know something's up, doesn't smell uh -huh. right. But, you know, he just donated all this money to Harvard. I'd better keep my mouth shut. People are pretty yeah. good at keeping secrets. I mean, I mean, that's an interesting example because, of course, he had uh, the previous conviction uh, for the same stuff many years, you know, many years before and in between. Uh, like, if you if you read, you remember that book, uh, Game Change, about the 2008 election, which came out of what, like 2009, 2010, something like that? Uh, there, there's a line in there in that book, you know, that just sort of offhandedly refers to uh, to rumors, to to to, uh, to to rumors that Bill Clinton uh, was flying around with this guy Jeffrey Epstein, and they said something or other about underage women. It was like two sentences in the book, but it's uh, but you know, but I mean, it's it's in, it's in this incredibly popular book. That Is that Heilman and and uh, Halperin? Yeah, yeah, that that thing. Well, Halperin, it turns out. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so that's so there, there. There's an example of Halpern, chronic sexual harasser, masturbator. Sure. Writes a book and mentions Jeffrey Epstein, but you know he's got something to hide. He's going to. No, keep he, it. He, he does have something to hide, but he's still willing to spill the beans. Not yeah. enough. Okay. Because he doesn't the want the beans. The point is that it's it's not a, it's not very much of a secret. When, uh, when there's like an offhand uh, reference to it in a bestseller, you know, like 10 years before he's arrested. So 
I, I mean, obviously that's not the same as being brought to justice, but if, if we're talking about just keeping things secret, like nobody involved is talking, you know, that seems like a very different, that seems like a very different thing. Jeffrey, so can, can I pursue this with you? I mean, I, sure, I, I would say we have 10 minutes left, but yes. Okay. Sure. So Jeffrey Epstein... Mm-hmm. I, I almost ended up going to his apartment because Woody Allen, he would throw dinners for Woody Allen. And a friend of mine, who's a comic, knew Jeffrey. Huh? Yeah. And he said, you know, uh, Jeffrey Epstein likes to create these salons for Woody. Uh. And uh, he said, now, i got to warn you, Jeffrey got into trouble, but no, he didn't know she was underaged. Mm-hmm. And I and I remember looking him up in the New York Times. If you read the coverage in the New York Times of Jeffrey Epstein, uh, in the lead up to, yeah. it, it was like, yeah, he didn't. He prom, you know, he didn't know. He promised to, and uh, everybody kept it secret. Ken Starr kept it secret. So, 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 so wait a second. It doesn't sound to me. Like you're describing things being kept secret. It no, no, no. Really In the, like... the, 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 there was a, two stories. There was the official story about Jeffrey Epstein yeah. with the New York Times and, and people around Jeffrey Epstein spread, and that was he didn't know she was underage. Uh-huh. It was a prostitute, but he didn't know she was underage. And that covered everybody kept it secret. Everybody. Well, except, of course, the fact that there were these uh, these widespread rumors that even made it in, you know, like I said, in, in passing into, um, you know, into a best-selling book 10 years before he was arrested. So that sounds like a really lousy job to me of keeping anything a secret. There are a lot of things that are out there but can't be proven. Okay. Look right. at Trump. Look at how people keep – look at Donald Trump is not Donald going Trump. to – you think he's going to go to prison? I think, think that completely con- unre- I think that's a completely unrelated question to what we're talking about. What, uh, what, what is it that you think has been kept secret about Trump? Not that he hasn't been brought to justice for, but what's been kept secret? You can keep something secret by revealing everything. I'm not trying to be clever here. That doesn't sound like a secret. Well, hang on for one second. Okay. If, if you have a secret, and the Clintons taught me this, you do a document, uh, you do a document dump. Where you, uh-huh. you say... Hey, I have nothing to hide. Here are 50,000 documents, and you, you have to pour through all these secrets, and the secrets end up contradicting one another. And the stuff with Trump is that if you do everything out in the open oh. and there are no secrets, you can keep every secret. It's really hard to, to well, so, so so I would say, like, I would say all of Trump's dirty laundry and, and, and all of the things that, you know, you want him to be brought to justice for are all extremely a matter of public record. Um, and but they've been politicized. You know, but they've been politicized. Sure, sure. But that's, that's, a, that's a completely separate question, whether something's been politicized, whether something's been presented in a way as the hope that fewer people notice it, whether something's been brought to justice and faced accountability for what they did. None of these things are even remotely the same question as whether they've been able to keep something secret. In other words, whether lots and lots of people aren't hearing from people who are involved in something about all of the gory details of it, 
uh, which, again, in the Trump case is the case, in the Epstein case is the case, you know, in the... Uh, Look at Russiagate. Look at Russiagate. What happened with Russiagate was there was a secret. We know that he was trying to court Putin. We know that he was laundering money for, for oligarchs. We know that. But you ask a lot of people on the left now, they're furious with Rachel Maddow for pursuing Russiagate. There was no there yeah, there. She's, she's, okay, so so I think we have had an argument about Russiagate before. And but that's the point I'm making. Have, I'm not arguing with we wait, But we should, we, we, should, we should wait to have one again until we've got two hours to start doing it. The point I'm making uh, is I, that, that, that you can keep a secret. You can politicize a secret. People will conspire. But politicizing a secret and keeping a secret are completely different. No, no, you can keep a secret secret by politicizing it, by by saying, by getting enough people to, but, be, to but, believe. But, but, but even, even if for the sake of argument you're right about the Russia stuff, which, by the way, for the record, is not my position, but even if for the sake of argument you were, then there's a huge difference between getting lots of people not to believe something's true and keeping something a secret. Those are just completely separate issues. The secret loses its currency once it's oh, been put... Oh, okay, okay, that's fine. But they have a... But it can lose its currency without being you know, kept secret. And, the, and in the 9-11 case, for this to be true, that there was a big government conspiracy, that it was an inside job, whatever, it wouldn't be that people involved about it have told a bunch of people, and we know a lot of details about it, but also lots of people don't believe those details because it's been politicized. That's not the sort of situation you'd be describing, right? The sort of situation you'd be describing is something being kept a much better secret than any of these cases you're talking I about. I believe, here's what I'm saying to you. I believe okay. that you can, that the CIA or whoever was behind the Kennedy assassination, whoever was behind 9-11, that if you pour out, if you do a document dump, the truth is contained within there. You don't need secrets. You don't need to keep the secret. You need to Okay, so, so where's the document dump with all the stuff about 9-11? That's an issue. But what I'm okay, saying so is... Probably that just seems irrelevant to the initial conversation. That you, that there's, what I'm saying is that secrets can be kept by revealing everything so nothing is true. I, I mean, even if for the sake of argument I accepted that that was something that keeping a, that we should describe what you're describing, that we should call that keeping a secret, even if I accepted that, I don't really see what it has to do with the original thing because the sense in which that would count as keeping a secret would be very different from the sense in which, you know, for example, the inside job 9-11 conspiracy would have been kept a secret for the last 20 years. I think the information, as they say on the X-Files, the information's out there. Hey, what was, uh, quick question, uh, what was FDR's reaction on December 7th, as he pronounced it? What do you think he thought on December 7th, 1941? What was his immediate uh, reaction? I have no idea. I expect you to know more about this than I do. He was, he would have jumped up and down if he, if he could. He was looking, he wanted to go to war in Europe, correct? Mm -hmm. Sure. So, just wanted your reaction to that.
Well, I mean, I think that was covered earlier, right? But say that, uh, you know, say that somebody, you know, like, you know, who benefits this off of the first, a good first question for investigating something? But if you go from here's a party that would benefit from something, therefore, you know, they made it up or orchestrated in order to get that benefit, you end up in a lot of very strange places, you know, would it, like, you know, for example, you end up believing some things that would probably be the opposite of what you think about, you know, Pfizer and Moderna. Mm-hmm. He used Pearl Harbor to go to war in Europe. Hitler declared war on America. Mm-hmm. But so what? We, they, you know, if we had, anyway, to, to be, listen, I'm going to give you this argument. It's Christmas. I'm <laughs> feeling benevolent. I'm wrong. Let's ask Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, who's joining yes, us. Yes, let's ask him, please. You, you heard this. and David, you're completely wrong. Thank you. From front, right, and center. <laughs> oh. Are you saying that, that we should not have gone to war in Europe? Uh, no, I'm just saying that had we lost in Europe, uh, we would have looked back and... Question, ask more questions about why the Pacific Fleet was so vulnerable on December 7th, and we would have looked at cables that went back and forth between Churchill and FDR, and FDR saying, my hands are tied here, I can't get you the weapons you need, and Japan attacked us, Hitler didn't. So there's... A- about secrets? Yes. I don't, I don't believe in secrets. And in, in all my years of practice, I've told this to people. A secret is something that you've told nobody else, not even your best friend, because your best friend probably has another best friend. And it's just going to be a daisy chain, and overnight, a million people are going to know it. Now, and just like with Epstein or with all of these scandals, lots of people know it. That doesn't necessarily mean that anybody's prompted to go to the authorities or thinks that, that they will be believed or uh, thinks that they may suffer some consequence. But secrets are very, very rare in my experience. Here's what is not a secret. Ben Burgess's book is a masterpiece, according – blurb the book, Ethan. I, I just read it over the last two days. It's fantastic. It's entertaining. It's illuminating, especially for someone who knows very little about philosophy, like myself. It's a great primer on philosophy. It's not primer, is it? It doesn't say primer, but it's a prime. Whatever it is, it's fantastic. And – um it, it, uh, it, it goes hither and yon. I learned about the czar. I learned about uh, Descartes. I learned, I learned a million different things in this thin little volume. It's fantastic. So, Ben, wow. Will you loan it to me? No, you, you have to buy one. Buy ten copies for every library. And it, although I haven't read it yet. Person sales are very unfortunate. I'm giving it the Feldman guarantee. If you buy the book and you don't like it, if you don't laugh your ass off, if there well, the other the other thing I really loved about it is there's a whole section that goes into these debates that then you can go back and watch the debates on YouTube so you can see the things that were referenced in the book. For example, watch the, for example, for example, Hitchens v. Hitchens. This was fantastic. These two brothers out in Michigan 
uh, Christopher uh, debating his brother on um, the Iraq War decision and then on religion. It's 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 amazing to watch these guys in action, especially after having read uh, Burgess's take on the whole thing. It was very cool. Thank you, Ethan. We're giving uh, it the one further point. We can't sell this tonight, but I think we may have a conspiracy theorist on our hands here. Uh, this Mr. Feldman. So, yeah, it kind of sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. No, okay. no, I am not a conspiracy theorist. I, I know the three of you got on the phone about an hour ago and said, let's accuse Feldman of being a conspiracy theorist so we can take yeah, over his yeah. show. I know what's going on here. I'm anything but a conspiracy theorist. I'm sick of the three of you plotting against me. That's I don't like cabals, and I don't like kebabs. <laughs> but hold the book up one more time there, Ethan. Go by and what, read the name of the book, the full title. I will what he got right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters. And I'm giving it the Feldman guarantee. Buy the book. If, if there isn't a laugh on every page, <laughs> I will. I will reimburse you. I haven't read it yet, but I know there's a laugh. Yeah, I, think, I think there's some pages without laughs. But, I know. Uh, you know, Iraq, whatnot. But, um, yeah, no, I really, really appreciate that. Uh, if I could just plug really quickly before I before I go off the air. Uh, yes. So uh, tomorrow uh, there's, uh, or I guess people listening to this as a podcast today, uh, there's a, I'm going to have an article in the nation that's like kind of previewing the book, so people should check that out. Wow. And wow. subscribe to Jacobin. I subscribe to Jacobin. Support independent media and support the nation magazine. These are, you know, I always talk about charity and what to give to and what not to give. We are losing our democracy and the only thing between us and fascism is Jacobin and the nation and give them an argument. Read Professor Ben Burgess over at Jacobin, the nation, and listen to give them an argument. It's a great podcast. Are you going to be I here next to week? Today for the first, I listened to it today for the first time. I went to your, to your YouTube channel. I watched you looking at an old Sam Cedar thing and going through oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. The thing about yeah. Ayn Rand. The Ayn Rand yeah. one, that was very, it was very funny. Yeah, I was fired from Give Them an Argument. He fired me from Give, give Them an Argument. Yeah, yeah, I, wow. I fired him for the thing that I wasn't paying him to do. I, 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 I just stopped asking him to do it for a while. I well, was looking for every it, Sunday it, it, night. Because, yeah, it was because of, just because he's a conspiracy theorist, that's why. Yeah. You're against me. Oh, do we have you next week or are you, uh. Yeah, yeah, yeah let's, uh, so next week's what? That's the, uh, 30th. Yeah, sure. Sounds good. Okay. Thank you. I wish you and yours a happy and safe Christmas. Merry Christmas. We say Merry Christmas on this show. <laughs> Merry Christmas. I noticed that recently. I was doing some Christmas shopping today, and I noticed that as a Jew, I'm saying Merry Christmas to all of the Gentile shopkeepers, and they're all saying Happy Holidays. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's everyone's being very polite. Everyone's dancing around. <laughs> All Thank right. You. Well, uh, low Saturnalia and uh, and and you know, happy Kwanzaa and whatnot. So uh, see you next week. Thank you. Uh, so here's something my son said to me, Doctor Philip Hershenfeld. Yeah. He said, 
He's called the Oedipus Complex. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> well, that solves everything. Moving on. Uh, for, a, for a complex, that thing is extremely simple. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you about the electric complex in a second. What did your son say? Let's hear it. My Let's son hear. said... My son, I don't want to embarrass him. I have, I have a son who is a Marxist, but he's now working. He's, a, he's working for a living, which is, I'm very proud of him. And that, that, you know, he's still a Marxist. And he said to me, if I change my last name, I'd have a lot more money. And I said, why? He says, I always feel obligated to leave a bigger tip because my last this is name the real is real thing. This is actually, I've experienced this also. Very common. Yeah. And I will, I refuse to pick up change on the street, although I want to. <laughs> that, that's where I draw the line, my friend. That's <laughs> I will bend over and pick up. Uh, so it's a real, so it is a real thing because I find, especially when I'm giving out a sticker for my album, like today I was giving a guy a Christmas bonus and I was, uh, it's a UPS guy, but I wanted to, Give him a little cash. So I was giving. I was going to give him ten bucks, but then I said, "You know what? I'm also going to give him a sticker for my album, which is called Thug Thug Juice." So right. I'm like, Wait a minute. I'm giving this like, guy a sticker that says Thug Thug Juice on it with my picture on it. I got to give him twenty. Right. Right. I can't have him. Yeah. Here's what I thought. Tomorrow night, Christmas Eve, I wait until the sun goes down before I start poisoning the wells. I don't because I think it's it's a bad look to do it out and like ah there's another Jew poisoning the wells. I do it under you know cloak of darkness so we don't. The problem is that the wells like here every house has its own well. So if you're poisoning the well outside, you're just poisoning your own. <laughs> so it's a real so it's a real thought. Go ahead, Doctor. Yes, because we have all been tainted with the same prejudice. So that we feel that we have to fight it when when nobody else is thinking about it very much, but it's it's in the culture. So speaking, we were talking to Dr. Harriet Fraud, uh, Monday show about identity politics. Is identity a neurosis? Is can you become neurotic if you're Jewish? Can you be neurotic if you're black or LGBT? Does being having an identity, have, being part of a protected class, does that create neuroses? You need an identity. It, it, it's, it's an essential part of development. Can you be all twisted up inside about your identity? Absolutely, but, but an identity is, is crucial. This is um, who I am. Well, this is the, uh, from the Buddhist perspective, this is your illusion of who you are. In fact, there, there is no identity. It's all just a big story that you tell yourself and you tell the world to uh, do battle with the ultimate, vast, yawning nothingness of everything. <laughs> but my so, identity, I don't wake up every morning and say, I'm a Jew. That's not my identity. I wake up every morning and say, I'm a self-hating Jew. It's a complete, no. I wake up, but that being forced upon, it, it, let's say you're black. A black person doesn't wake up every morning and say, I'm a black person. 
but society puts that. I, I, th I think that that's probably a giant generalization, and, and lots of people do have that as a primary feeling about themselves. Um, and it, it, it's a totally personal thing. And it's also a personal thing whether it ends up causing you grief and grief to the people around you, which would be, I guess, towards the neurotic end of things. You can have that as a very strong and fundamental and primary part of your personality and sense of yourself and have that be completely healthy or a source of suffering, I think. I'm confused. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> Our uh, identity, how we self-identify, what does that mean? What, is what does it mean to self-identify? <laughs> You have a sense about yourself. You don't go walking around all day and saying, I'm an American, I'm white, I'm Jewish, I'm a comedian. If you, do, if you have to do that, you've got a problem. Um, but all these things are firmly placed with, they are within you to be called upon when necessary. So this black person who gets up and takes the subway and goes down to Wall Street and doesn't see anybody who looks like him, then it's going to be more apparent to him what his race is. But, but in schizophrenia, for example, one of the most disturbing symptoms, one of the earliest symptoms, is a loss of identity, a loss of this feeling of who I am. It gets fragmented. Hmm. And it's a central part of the psychosis. Identity, uh, this is, this is, identity is who is you trying to match who you are with how others perceive you? No. No, if, if that's what it's all about for you, that's a problem. You should have your own sense independently, this is who I am, this is who I affiliate with, this is who I'm comfortable with, this is what I believe in. All these things are part of your identity. I like to wear brown shoes, whatever it is. How many different identities are there? What's the taxonomy? It depends how many how many pairs of shoes you have. <laughs> well, how how many if you had if if you had to break it down? How are there? I know there are like archetypes in comedy, right? There's the troublemaker. There's the hero. There's the antihero. There's the I mean these are like there's seven classic archetypes in a movie or a sitcom, but those aren't identities. How many, how many different identities, if you, can you have, you can have several identities, right? I'm, I don't think so. I think you have to have a basic primary identity of who you are. It, it uh, contains many different aspects. You could be a sailor and a bookkeeper and a. Are we husband. talking about Hall Are we talking about Halloween costumes? 
I can be a sailor, but I definitely don't have the bookkeeper costume in my Halloween. All right. So is that the purpose of Halloween? There you go. Yes, actually. It's to, in a fun sort of a way, to take on another identity. That's what I, identity normally just being uh, Dracula or slut. <laughs> All right. One of my earliest childhood memories was being traumatized in kindergarten. There was a parade, and my mother and her friend uh, dressed me up as Mr. Clean. They put a bald fright wig on me and a white T-shirt and white pants. And they made you clean the school. And they made me clean the school. I'm being, and I was humili. I found it humiliating. I was angry. It was one of my earliest memories of my mother, and she had a very attractive friend, gorgeous friend, Betsy. Her name was Betsy, gorgeous. And they were laughing at me. They put a fright. I'm being serious. They put a a bald wig on me, uh, messed up my comb over at the time. I was five. I was already already had a comb over, and uh, white shirt, white pants. And I had a go to, and I hated them for laughing at me and being yeah. Mr. Queen. This is you the know, source of your problems. I'm being serious. What's that? I'm being serious about this. I'm being serious. Not this one incident, but that you would have a mother who would humiliate you and laugh at you. That's a problem. Wait, to, in defense of his mother. Oh, um, <laughs> liberal, the liberal Buddhist. <laughs> she very well might have thought she was, you know, having fun, not at your expense, but with you and introducing you to this fun holiday with some original content and not being the fireman, not being the policeman, not being Batman. You were Mr. Clean. But my mother, and I'm not making this up, and then we'll change this. Sorry. My mother would have preferred me to be a virgin. This is what this is the truth. My mother did not want me to fall in love with anybody. She wanted and the white you wear white on yeah. to signify to be a virgin. The last thing my mother did not want to share me with another woman. Clearly, that sounds like a reverse a reverse Oedipus with a with a with a backflip. Um, <laughs> I, you know, your memory, it triggered a memory of mine, which was that... Um, I think we um, had a breakthrough um, here. <laughs> I'm being absolutely... This is a God's honest truth. Go mm -hmm. ahead. My, my, no, your your mom uh, dressed you as Mr. Clean. My, my mom dressed me as the, as the turtle from Turtle Wax. <laughs> <laughs> completely humiliating, because nobody even knew who the turtle was. <laughs> The name of the product. No, that didn't happen. I'm having this. Hang on for one. I'm sorry, but my mother. She, my mother had this friend named Betsy who was knocked, or knocked out, gorgeous, just the most one of the most beautiful women who ever lived. Right, and the two of them were laughing at me. And even at five, I knew that Betsy was gorgeous. And you wanted her to be impressed with you and admire you, not laugh at you. Exactly. You've never forgotten that. But or or laugh at you, but at least have the courtesy to also sleep with you. <laughs> and 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 they were laughing at my virginity, the whiteness, yes. the cleanliness. Uh, hmm. And the baldness. And the baldness. <laughs>
and I lost my virginity at a very late age. I got a program next week and question her about this. Yes, I, I lost my virginity at such a late age at the brothel. I got the senior discount. That's how old I was. Did you? Was it one of those crazy coincidences where you happened to lose it to a guy with a mop? So that's your claim. Go. I interrupted you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm being no, honest about this. I had nothing, but I did want to say to you, I have one of my earliest and earliest memories. It's also, I think it could be a thing that's common to comedians or performers. I had a, an early humiliation memory, which was that I, I was going to this, uh, it, was, it wasn't very orthodox, but whatever that, that nursery school was on Pelham Parkway, we had Israeli teachers, and one of them was very hot. Um, and I remember for, I guess it was for Independence Day, for Israeli Independence Day, they suddenly had us, it was like a school function. I must have been in third, second grade. They suddenly said, oh, we're dancing as a class. They dragged us up on stage to dance in a circle. We hadn't rehearsed, and I already had the sense of, you can't go on stage without rehearsing. This is horrific. It was absolutely terrifying and humiliating. Yeah, and she was Israeli. Was she carrying a gun? <laughs> That's what I think is so sexy about Israeli women. I always think, and I said I don't. I, I said I don't want to get on stage, and she she pointed a gun at me and said, "You're going on stage." <laughs> so Christmas is upon us. I say Happy Holidays. I, I say Merry Christmas because I feel absolutely. Because what do I care? Yeah. What is this big thing about not saying Merry Christmas? Yeah. It is. It's the most wonderful time of the year. I mean that. It's not just a song lyric. Um, it's festive. I like the solstice. I like any extreme. I like the shortest day of the year. I like the longest day of the year. What I don't like is those average days, like around <laughs> March or like October. That, it's boring. I like it when the, you know, the earth is really leaning. You're almost falling off. Right. Uh, I find that exciting. By the way, I, I heard something amazing. I read this. I don't know if you saw that New York Times op-ed about well, thank God, like, thanks for the solstice, basically, was the subject. I don't know if you read that thing, but <clears throat> among the tidbits in there, you got to read this thing. You know how long it takes for Uranus to go around the sun? You know how long a single year is on that planet? How many of our years it is? Yeah, he used 80, the term year 84. 84 years. 84 of our years to get around once. That's just mind-blowing. I know it's not a big deal, but to think about that. That many, many people live a whole life and they never live one. You're, there's no anus joke coming up. I'm actually. What, you say, I'm, I'm, what would Freud say about Uranus and Sun with your father? <laughs> what, what would, would suggest some kind of toilet training issues that. I believe. That, yeah, that, that, yeah. that a full year would be one year. You were one year old and. Uranus and Sun. Am I doing well, Doctor Hershenfeld? I think I think there's some toilet training issues here. Jason, are you wearing a tie? <laughs> I think it's a strip. No, I'm wearing a, a hands-free device. Uh, that, that's oh, sort of okay. Because I didn't think this venue calls for. Right. By the way, these are beasts by Doctor Dre. People are confused. They think it's, it's actually a PhD. It's not a medical degree. No. Doctor Dre. He's a PhD. It's not a medical doctor. How often when you're, I'll ask this of Ethan, yes. when you're, you're 
you practice without a license, but you yeah. How often are you paying attention? But I do have a permit. I do have a learning permit. <laughs> Which allows him to carry a gun. Also. <laughs> it allows me to practice psychotherapy as long as a licensed psychotherapist is sitting there. <laughs> how, how, when you listen to one of your patients, do you pay yes. attention to the accidental puns that they make? Are there some patients who drive you nuts? Because they keep punning unwittingly? The pun is the gateway to the unconscious. It's the royal road. The mm. pun, it's the rocky road, if you will. It's the, it's, if we can use a Baskin-Robbins metaphor. Yes. It's the richest, creamiest area. Because, uh, for example, um, uh, a patient just today, um, um, said to me, um, you've, you've forgotten to, uh, to bill me. Um, what are you, some kind of a quack? And I realized that there was a, there was a duck, there was an embedded duck reference in the right. bill comments that the patient was unaware. Right. So I, I, uh, well, there I was, I, I'm not fat shaming here, but there was, uh, a morbidly obese guy who did some work at an office where I worked. And uh, he would pun all the time. And it was he would say, you know, uh, we got to switch from MS-DOS to uh, Apple. I am fed up with this. It's just too heavy a lift. You know, I... I and... He was doing it in front of a room full of vicious comedians who are just, you know, they, they, he was morbidly obese, and and when he left the the room, we would count the puns that he would. He was like challenging us to, you know. He might have been audition, auditioning for a writer's gig. It sounds like he was. But he, they would say, like, when are you coming back? He says, well, I have a full plate today. And we all look at each other like, what? come on, man. What are you doing? So is that? That's not conscious. It's not conscious. Yeah. I think when somebody's obsessed by food, it comes out in their language. But I'll give you another one of my professional secrets, speaking of secrets. And this will no longer be a secret. Whenever anybody says, I am not. You can be sure that they are. Mm -hmm. So I'm not fat shaming. Yes, you were. <laughs> I'm not racist. <laughs> it's not about the money. It's not about the money. Exactly. It's about the money. Right, right. Believe me, when I say it's not about the money, it's not I'm about not the money. I'm not lying. Yes, you are. Right. That, that is but true. The thing it's, it's not, it, it's not, you don't really believe that as a hard and fast rule. I believe right? you're that. saying it, you're saying it can, it, it opens up the question, right? You're not saying it's, it's an admission of some kind. I think we well, profess things to kill the thing we are. Okay, there you go. I think, I, I, you know, like, like with, you know, I, I think there are, I don't want to reveal too much about myself, but I think my politics, 
I live in fear of going down the wrong path politically. So I overcompensate uh, out of fear that, you know, I could just give up and become a right-wing uh, right wing putts because I, it, it's so easy. It's the path of least resistance to just, you know. You know that that it's interesting you mentioned that because that's exactly what the Burgess book is about. The Hitchens thing. He just is trying to figure out what the hell happened to this guy, who was for him kind of a hero and a great leftist a Trotskyite, and then so it's just trying to figure out how the hell did that happen. Do people stop? Um, this is a serious question, Doctor Hershenfeld. Do people stop thinking? Because uh, I, the older I get, I'm not talking about senility, and I'm not. I have noticed that some of my friends, and I'm tempted to just stop thinking about important things because the clock is ticking. Why bother? And you just coast, and, and you just make the easiest intellectual or anti-intellectual choices. People stop thinking. They stop being inquisitive about themselves, right? Well, some people do, and I would question how inquisitive they were to begin with. If it's, you know, if it's really an important part of your identity to be inquisitive, you're going to, you know, keep it up forever. You know, there's this story about Feynman. He was sitting in his wife's hospital room. She had terminal cancer, and there's something dripping into her arm, and he starts coming up with some kind of calculus. I forget exactly what they were. He starts figuring out things having to do with the rate of flow or God knows what it is. If you're curious, you're curious, and right. you don't stop being curious. Right. Uh, I will say, though, I know what you're talking about, David. And actually, again, when I was reading this Burgess book, it's dense in places and difficult, and it is much easier to read the read the paper. It is. And so it's probably a good idea to resist the urge to do the easy thing. And at least you got to take some time uh, out of the day to exercise that analytical brain muscle. Yeah. I've always been inquisitive since I was a child. I've always asked the important question over and over again. Why is everybody more successful and happy than I am? Uh -huh. It just seems to be the same. It's one of the great mysteries of the world. Why is everybody having a good time but not me? Well, everybody. And why is everyone else? Oh, God. After you. No, please, doctor. <laughs> Everybody has a few central motivating fantasies that never change. They, they, they accompany you through life. Um, what therapy can do is help you understand what they are so that you're not driven by them to the same degree. But I don't think they really change. It's part of your identity, who you are. Anyway, I so rudely interrupted and, you. And Freud teaches us that, I think, that you can repair the past. Is that a no. fair? No? You cannot repair the past or change the past. You can 
Oh, oh, David, you're thinking of Doc Brown from Back to the Future. <laughs> they they do look similar. They have the one right, hand. Yeah, but yeah, go, yeah. go You can mitigate the influence that the past has over your current life. You can't change it. You can't. I mean, this this Mister Clean. Travesty that you went through—that's <laughs> that's always going to be there. But maybe someday you'll be able to see yourself as a hairy, non-virgin, filthy, a filthy, hairy yeah. man, a and hairy just ape. ravish, ravishing Betsy. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, she cries instead of laughs. Well, but, yes. but consensually, <laughs> consensually. Yeah, crying consensually. You're yes. both, but you're both crying. Consensually crying. Uh, thank you. I look forward. I don't, think, I don't think you would want her anymore. Are you still in touch with her? Uh, well, I don't want to get into that's oh, okay. off, off the record. I I, I can't reveal. Uh, okay. I but I do notice that older women, uh, it's like. Well, anyway, uh, older women are not as unimaginable to me as they were when I was. Like, like they, they're anyway. They have their charms. Yes, they do. Like okay. you know, Ginger from forget it. Uh, Ethan Hirschenfeld, Thug Thug Jew. Oh, can I plug yes, one, please, one of your please. guests? I also got this in the mail this week. This you got somewhere in LA. Somewhere in L.A. It's very funny. Yes, I like it a lot. Um, Jose Arroyo, Jose Arroyo, very, very funny comic. So I'm, I'm, I'm populating my library with, with Feldman guests. Right. And I'm enjoying the hell out of it. So books are the greatest gift because you're not only gifting the person who receives the gift, you're gifting the author, and and it's a gift that keeps on giving because books in print are read by more than one person. You can leave it in the laundry room for somebody to read, and you can buy books and give them to libraries. If there's a book that you really, really think a lot of people need to read, buy 10 copies of it and walk around to libraries uh, and give them out. Thank Amen. You. Amen. Yes. Amen. Thank you. And don't buy them on Amazon unless you have to buy. Like I think somewhere right. in LA is that yeah. you can only buy on Amazon. Yeah. Um, Merry God Christmas. Bless. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Very quickly, Ethan. Chinese food. Chinese. What? Let's ask Ethan one. What do you like better, Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? You know, I looked this up. When was Jesus born? I did look this up recently because I was like, what is this? When is it actually happening? And they say it's right at midnight. So take your pick. Christmas Eve, if you like it, Christmas morning. It's right there. That's, that's what it says uh, according to uh, the gospel of the gospel according to Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. And when he was born, the doctor slapped his butt. No sound. And then he turned the other cheek, and then there's a joke there somewhere. And he said, "Why, have, doctor, doctor, why have you forsaken me?" Yes, there's something. Thank you, 
Dr. Philip Hirschenfeld. Thank you, David Feldman. I think we had a good Thank you, Dr. Dr. Feldman and Hirschenfeld. Thank, Thank you. you. Thug Thug Jew. Watch it. Spend Christmas Eve watching Thug Thug Jew. Yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah. Let us now go to California, where the great Emil Guillermo is standing by. I have to put something in my stomach. So what uh, like what? Like, like uh, an implement? No, I actually I forgot to eat today. Uh, I almost did, too. I ate before I came in. I before I, I, sorry. Eddie Brill and I went out for uh, dinner at a vegan restaurant last night. It was so good. Yeah, it, it, it in, was, in Manhattan? Yeah, it was so expensively good. <laughs> what did you have? I had a vegan Reuben sandwich with sauerkraut, with melted vegan cheese. And, you know, it was unbelievable. And then I had... Thousand Island dressing? It was all vegan. Be, yeah, I know, but we, uh, my my wife makes a... a with tempeh. A with tempeh. The tempeh, yeah. Yeah. But, I had a vegan Reuben the other day, too, at a place in Berkeley. The butcher's, uh, the butcher's son. But, but, uh, tell me more. What, what, did you have like a, did you top it off with a vegan bread pudding? Uh, I had, uh, I had apple pie with oh, pistachio yeah. ice cream. And I didn't vegan, want vegan, it. right? Of vegan course, that's, that's, that's all they serve is all vegan. Oh, this is vegan, and, and it's so convincing, right? You didn't miss the meat at all. In fact, you probably went back home and said, "Is this meat? Is this meat?" Right? You probably yeah, it was delicious. We have to. Yeah. Have it. Here's what I want to do. I want we're going to take a quick break so I can sure. put something in my mouth. And uh, you're listening to the David Feldman show. Where is my? Hang on. I so. We're going completely old school here. All my equipment is, I can't use my equipment because uh, I have to wipe my computer clean in order to use the equipment. So everything looks a little uh, old school. Uh, when we come back, we will talk with Emil Guillermo, but I want to put something in my mouth, if that's okay. Sure, sure. I'll hang out. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's talk about food. Food? Yeah. yeah. What did I do here? Hang on. Here we go. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. He'll tell a dirty joke he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty. Come way back. He's a human man with an evil right. Some days he's a man and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. Look at your ears all right, buckled in real tight. He's got to stay in his coming, yo. Thank you. 
Get your ears on right, I'm coming real tight. He's got enough to say, and he's coming your way. He's got enough to say, and he's coming your way. The David Feldman Show, wherever you get your podcasts, that's where you can find us. The David Feldman Show, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and we have a YouTube channel. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Office hours, Friday night at 8 p.m. Spend Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve with us. Let's bring in my old friend, Emil Guillermo, host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and he is a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. It is good to see you, my friend. Happy holidays. Happy Merry Christmas. And, yes, you know, I'm so glad to hear you and the Hersonfields talking about Christmas and Christmas Eve, because I was actually kind of, I was wondering if I had to say happy holidays to everyone, you know, but I, I guess Chris, Christmas is the, the generic, right? We can say Christmas. I, I think there's so many problems. Go. I think there's so much to worry about. Uh, if somebody says, "What do I? It's Christmas. What's the big deal? It's like July 4th." Yeah, you, it's, it's just a gen, it becomes a generic thing. Is yeah. there a, a really a baby Jesus in the crash? I mean, you know, come on, it's just Christmas. That's the name. That's what they call it. I, I started feeling more open during the pandemic uh, about last Christmas. Of course, was like a disaster. Well. You know, I stayed in. But this Christmas, I am grinching it. I'm grinching it because of Omicron. Do you say Omicron or Omicron, David? I, Omicron. Omicron. It's, it's, that's the way the Greeks would say it. Do you have any Greek professors in the professor? Are they even Greeks? Yeah, I think pie is next. I'm in the mood for pie. Pie, pie, Thank pie. Hang on, let me just brag to you about Leslie made yeah. me beans. Now, beans? Olive with no, no oil, right? Rancho Gordo. Uh-huh. You know that Rancho Gordo? Heirloom beans. Okay. So I these are white beans. beans. Look at this. Look at, look at this bean. Look at these Oh, good. Those are big. Rancho There's a Gordo. white lima bean. I'm not a big fan of lima beans. Big, like the size Thanks. of scallops. You can get heirloom beans that are the size. Of, it's like eating scallops. And she puts it in some kind of, some broth. And it's like I'm eating garlic and onion, but there's no garlic and onion in it. And it's like a chicken. It tastes like a chicken broth. It's like mind-boggling. Yeah. So, uh, well, you know, heirloom anything is good because it means that you're getting, you're you're in the legacy, right? You're mm-hmm. you're in the the old stuff. You know, you're you're back in the good the, the good vintage. You're not getting the new small little lima beans. You're getting the big. That's why they're big. That's why they're that's the way it is. I hate to plug Rancho Gordo yeah, because there's a waiting list for the really great heirloom beans yeah, because people have caught on to Rancho Gordo. So don't go to Rancho Gordo. I'm kidding. It's the best. <laughs> Rancho Gordo is such a great gift to give to people. The gift of, Give the gift of beans. The gift That's, of beans is good. And, you know, a, a little... Side of vino isn't a bad thing if you don't really know your friends as well. You know, you, you might want to help them out a little bit because some people are afraid of beans. You know, that's that is the truth. People don't, you know, they avoid beans. You know, people avoid beans. You shouldn't avoid beans. 
beans here. They don't give me gas. Beans don't give me gas. They don't? No. Your stomach you gets used to it. And, and you're supposed to, if you do a pre, uh, if you soak them overnight. Uh, yeah, even then, though. You know, Asians generally have a kind of a lactose intolerance kind of stuff thing going on. Well, you're putting milk but, in your beans? What, what does lactose have to do with it? Well, you know, but it's it's part of the digestion. Well, no, you're right. It, 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 it's I just did something that was totally illogical. You might say I pulled it out of my nether parts, but it has to do with with digestion, is what I'm saying. And beans have a way of playing with your digestion. But David, you know, I have with me. I feel I feel kind of like I have. Mm. The new American crack right here in my hands. Do you know what it is? I'm, I'm telling you, these beans. I, it's not, I have the new American crack in my hand. It's not Rancho Gordo beans. It's so good. What? You're, you're making you're making my mouth water. Now. These beans are so effing good. Thank you. You know what I I had before I came on the show. I had. I have a blueberry burrito. I take. I take blueberries. I put them on. Uh, I put them in a. It's called a crepe. It's a crepe. Well, no, I. But I don't cook it. I don't. I just. It's like raw. I've, I have one. I have one tortilla uh, with a a whole banana, and I eat that up. And then I have one burrito, and I put nothing but blueberries, and I roll it up, and I eat that. And then I have one burrito when I really feel like I've got to gorge out. I get some potato chips, and I put some, you know, like kettle-type potato chips. I put it in the burrito, and I crunch my way in this potato burrito crunch. And and that's what I usually have after fasting for 16 hours. And then I... Are you, you an know, intermittent faster? I am an intermittent fa- I've been intermittent fasting for, oh, I'd say about two and a half years. Every day? Every every day, every day. Sometimes, sometimes I do the, uh, you know, fourteen hour fast. Sometimes I do. It, it depends. I do it every day, but sometimes I vary the length. Fourteen, sixteen, eighteen. It depends. On you drink coffee while you're fasting. I do drink coffee, but I don't put anything in it. Except I have discovered. Here's my here's my secret because uh, I know you have the the doctor come on with. Uh, with Ethan, you talk about Freud, and I like that thing he said. You know, when people say I'm not, it's right. usually dead tip. You know, right? That they are. You know, it's like right. I'm not a racist. I'm not smart. I'm not a David Feldman fan. I'm, you know, right. So, uh, so what was I saying? Crack, crack. <laughs> no, no, crack. Yeah, but crack. All right. I have in my hands the crack, the new American crack. What everyone wants right now, especially if they want to, you know, consort with people this weekend. Uh, it is? Oh, I know what it is. The Pfizer therapeutic for COVID. No, no, I don't have that. I, I, I don't have that. I, I'm sorry. I, I do not have, I'm not on the short list for that. I have the round. Oh, wow. Let me see it. Who, who makes it? This is made by uh, Eye Health. Oh, what? hang on. I don't know if that is that like uh, some kind of uh, Eye Health. It's not like an iPod, Eye This, Eye That. Oh, you who? Hang on, I, I can't hear you. 
What are they? Are they look like tam, a tampon box. Uh, I'm yeah. sorry. So I have. What do you have? I have eye health. How much was yours? I only paid like eighty dollars. How many? How many tests do you get? Because I have this. Uh, you have the Binax now. Oh, that I, I didn't pay eighty dollars. I paid. I paid seventeen dollars for this. I paid twenty five dollars for two tests. Wow. I paid. I paid seventeen dollars for two tests. And I figured, well, if I was the type to go on eBay, because I know this is really hot, I could maybe sell it for, I don't know. I mean, there are people who, you know, these eBay, uh, you know, what do they call them? Uh, you know, the, the, the uh, arbitragers. The e I could be in, I could be a testing arbitrager. Don't you but think? I, I, I would keep it for myself, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to need it at some point. Yeah, don't you think that... Biden's decision to buy 500 million home tests should have been made like on day one. Before, I mean, this is what he, you, he should have got. He should have given tests to people. Yes, he should have given tests to people. Almost, you know, that, that, I mean, they, even Republicans yeah. would support testing because it's personal responsibility. It just seems they just discovered testing this week. Like, oh, but by the way, you know, you need to be vaxxed. You need to be triple vaxxed. Oh, but you still need to test. And we just haven't gotten around to that. So actually, there's more money in testing when you think about it than there is in, well, the therapeutics. Yeah. There's more money in therapeutics, probably. But well, testing I is. Heard, I heard a story that they had uh, something ready to go. It wouldn't have been like these tests are like ninety three percent, you know, uh, you know, reliable. Uh, someone had some tests ready to go. They were like eighty percent, maybe seventy five percent reliable. Right, um, you're more likely to. I, I understand you're more likely to get a false positive than a false negative. Yeah, that's why they. That's why they give you two, just to make sure, right? Yeah. Because a lot of people also will test at the wrong time. Uh, a lot. Of, I mean, I if I was going to have people to, you know, the family was going to come. I told my daughter to stay in New York. You know, don't come. So she didn't come. All my other uh, daughters are are not coming. So, but I was prepared. If they knock on the door, I was going to go up to the the window on the second floor. I was going to put one of these things in a bucket outside the window. And I was going to lower it down. And I was going to say, go ahead, test yourself before uh -huh. you come in. Show me, and then go to your car, and then come back in, right? And then put put the result in the bucket so I can see, and then I'll, like, hoist it up in the window, and then I'll, like, go downstairs and open the door. Let me ask I you a question. Let me ask you a question. Prepare to do that. Let me ask you a question. For public health. For public health. Before I have a party, you know I'm a big entertainer, right? Of course, you are. You are the entertainer, David. And before one of my dinner parties, I pass out ColoGuard. ColoGuard? Yeah, oh, I, I force oh. everyone to test for colon cancer. And we sit, and when we mail it in, we sit and wait for the results, and we bet. We, we bet on who's got it and who, who doesn't. We just sit and wait. Well, while you're waiting, you might as well make it competitive. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then of course, the upshot is when you get back the results, you're dealing with people when they're the least full of shit ever. Right. Oh, the reverend is popping in. 
Yeah. Oh, does he have a Kolagar story? No, but what we're going to do is I'm going to turn his video off. Oh, what, the Reverend is always trying to proselytize. Ah, there he is. Yeah, you know, they, they, and this time of year, it's his busy season. This is it. This oh is my it. God, you, I, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, on the streets, telling people to ignore Christmas. That whole church and state proselytizing that the Reverend Barry Lynn does. It's, you go walking with him? With yeah, we walk and family? try to convince people to. Uh, keep their mouths shut about their religious beliefs. Oh, wow. This time of year. I, I didn't know that about him. Oh, yeah. He does, he's always trying to convert people into shutting their mouths about their religious beliefs. Well, you know, David, I have discovered, you know, I told you I, I started meditating within the last year and a half or Here so. Here we go again. Yeah. I know, but, but we're not going to get in. Did you learn this at Harvard? No, no, no. <laughs> But now, uh, well, hang on. We have a pool going. How how many minutes into this segment is it going to take Emil to mention Harvard? Hey, meanwhile, did you know that Harvard did? Here we go. The freshman class was twenty six percent Asian American. The freshman class. So when when uh, the conservatives try to say that you know Harvard discriminates against Asians, well, not true. Not true, patently not true. So I, you know, I, that that's just a fact. And that happened last week. They uh, they announced the early admits, and the regular folks uh, get to apply, uh, get to uh, uh, extend the deadline to January first. But twenty six percent—that's some discrimination. You know, it's a Did you see the Obama daughters vacationing in Hawaii? Uh, are they well? That's that's for you know. That's the. the but did you see that's what what they wear? No, uh, no, I'm not. It's unbelievable. Nothing. What they, well, what they, they wearing? They were wearing string bikinis. You know, yeah. I you know Princess Margaret and yeah. Queen Elizabeth, and when they were, they would never be seen in in bikinis like that. Well, how old are they? How, they're of age. They're like 18. Yeah, but, if, but they were with their father and mother. And they were also in their string. But what do you like? So, I mean, so what, do you allow your kids to, to... I mean, there was nothing to hide. Well, look, uh, David, uh, you know, the Reverend Barry is listening. I, I am Catholic. I am... You know, I am a little bothered sometimes when I go to church and I see people with, like, a spaghetti strap or, you know, people in the summertime when they, they're dressed for the beach, they should be dressed for God. Whatever happened to shame of your body? Whatever Be more shame. Be more. No, actually, the body. I'm not bothered by it. I'm not bothered by it as long as they know the limitations of their body. I mean, I'm all for someone, you know, like... Mama Cass in a string bikini. Now there's an image. Power tour, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, let me ask you a question. Were you an exhibitionist? There's certain people who like just like to be seen. Oh, this is like your like your turtleneck uh, scarf uh, thing. You, this is like your easy assessment of people. Uh, so. I, I was not an exhibitionist. No. Okay. I, I I I. This is why I like the pandemic. I'm an inter, I'm an introvert. Right. 
That's why I stand in front of a gong. How is COVID in uh, California today? How's it feeling? Uh, you know, it's rainy. And oh, that's good. Saying, yeah, it's good. So people are staying indoors, which is what they should should do. I, I've stayed indoors. I've talked on my show, uh, Emil Must Takeout, uh, on Twitter and all the other places. I, I have just talked about how I have canceled Christmas for me. I mean, I, I know that no one wants to cancel it. Like Biden doesn't want Everyone's saying, don't cancel your plans. They don't want to be the bad guy. But I don't mind being the bad guy for me, saying, hey, look, kids, stay away. I'm and dad are going to stay here. Uh, we'll Zoom. This is normal for me. I'm Zooming with my friend David Feldman. Take a number. I'll, 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 talk, I'll Zoom with you after. And then this is, this is no, I like this. I like this. Right. In fact, my friend... Uh, Ishmael Reed, his play is opening up tonight in New York at the theater of the, at the theater for the new city. It's called The Slave Who Loved Caviar. It's about Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat's relationship. It's a satire, and it's funny, but it's deep. It's it's worth seeing, but box office is being hit right by COVID, so they're now going to go live stream. They're opening tonight, but there's going to be a link uh, to see the show live stream from the theater of the new city. But, you know, it it makes you wonder if they had just done the show in Berkeley or Oakland, where they're from, and just live streamed it out, they probably would have saved a little money, gotten out to more people. And that's the hope now that COVID's hit box office, but they're looking to maybe draw a bigger audience because they have a worldwide market. What are they shutting? I have a friend who's going to California for Sketchfest. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? The, the odds they're are? going. I, I see the ads for Sketchfest, too. There's going to be a, a Will Durst uh, uh, tribute or fundraiser. You know, Will's not performing. But I don't I don't know if they're going to have it. You know, the last couple of years they've been online, and it's been kind of sad because, you know, Sketchfest was always when the fun you know, events in January in San Francisco, comedy-wise. I don't know. Um, San Francisco is a little, like, they've, they have uh, lightened up on mask mandates. Through the, throughout the state, there's a mask mandate. But in certain counties where the numbers are lower, like San Francisco, I think Alameda County, you know, they've, They've been allowed to not have the mask mandates, indoor mask mandates. But now with Omicron, and it changes, right? It cha- every day, it's a new, it's a new story about Omicron. Not, like today, they say, well, we're finding out it's not as bad. It spreads fast, but it's not as bad. So it's okay if you're vaccinated and boosted. Not okay if you're unvaccinated. So, and and does it also stop being as contagious? As it once was. That's isn't South Africa saying? They say it's going down, yeah. right? They say it's not as, as severe, but once again, they, these are real time numbers that they're trying to update as it as the information comes in. I don't know how reliable it is, but it you know it's, they they always put that positive spin, and it makes me wonder that well, I you know really no one knows, right. and if no one knows. I, th- I think I would rather err on the side of caution, right? I mean, I'm, I'm used to it now after after two years. I mean, it's, it's kind of a shame uh, because I was starting to go out more, say, two years ago, and then 
because of the pandemic, I, you know, we had to do everything inside, and uh, I've gotten used to this now. I mean, right, this is, this is the, you know, for lack of a better phrase, isn't this, hasn't this become the new normal, right? This has become the way we deal with people. I mean, I actually look forward to, to talking to you this way, David, because I know that it would just be terrible if I had to see you in person. Let me ask but, you a question about the COVID yeah. test. Yeah. So they're twelve dollars and fifty cents each. Yours is twelve fifty. Oh, you oh you got two for yeah. yeah. My mine's are my, mine was seventeen dollars. So two. So two for, and you shove something up your nose. What if like you have guests mm-hmm. and you just pass the, the swab around and everybody puts it up ah. their nose and then you go well one of us has COVID the party's over. Community. It's a community swab. Here here we go. And and because we all pass it back and forth, we all have COVID. I like that. I'll write it into a novel. Okay. I think that sounds like we're, we're almost out of time and uh this See, is, I wanted this to talk frivolous to and, and fun. It's the yeah. holidays. What do you want to it, talk it, about? It is. But but David, you know, Marjorie Taylor Green. Uh, you know, last week she made a big deal about how diverse the Republican Party was. And then she said, and the look at the brown people and the black people and the yellow people. And then she got a whole lot of flack. Marjorie Taylor Greene saying the word yellow. She is the wrong color to say yellow. Only yellow people can say yellow. And yellow people, Asian Americans, never use the term yellow. I haven't used the term yellow about another fellow Asian American for, I don't know, at least a generation. I mean, I think I might have been a teenager when I last used the term yellow. And you right. know why? Yellow is, it's a negative. It's a slur. Remember Jimmy Breslin at Newsday? He had a, there was an Asian woman, or an Asian woman reporter that he was mad at. He called her a yellow cur. Do you remember that? A Google Jimmy Breslin yellow cur and it like destroyed his career. It was like the Jimmy the Greek thing, right? And you know yellow. And so it's not a term of love, and it definitely is a term of fear. Yellow peril, definitely a term of fear. And here's Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, "Oh, yeah, the yellow people." You know, the only way you can get away with that litany, black, brown, white, yellow, is if you, you know, and this is like the old joke. I don't care if you're black, white, brown, orange, or purple, right? Who are the orange people? Because that's a, the irony, right? That's the joke. This was unironic. It was earnest, and it was ignorant. And just another reason. And we would expect it. nothing less from Marjorie. Oh yeah, we, 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 yeah, we. This is this is the expectation, and and but the thing is, un, until or unless Asian American activists brought it to the attention of the media and other people. Hey, you know, you can't call this yellow. I mean, I know it's a term, but it's negative. It's like going into, like, a, a room full of rappers and using the N-word and saying you're down with them, you know. I'm down with the people. You are my N-word. And uh, just see what kind of reaction you get. So, I mean, that that's the kind of reaction Marjorie Taylor Green Green was wrong for yellow. That's, that's good. I like that. that that's that's my, my message today. Right. Read it on my ALDEF column. Also, you know, they try to make a big deal about Asian and black, like the New York Times. There's a big story about Asian-black relations. 
it's uh, try to make it sound like we we don't get along, even though black people have victimized some Asian Americans of late. But th those are that's criminal element. That's a, that communities aren't aren't warring. And I, I if anyone saw that New York Times article, I saw it. It reminded me of the supposed tension between blacks and Jews. Right, exactly. Well, here's the thing, and I know these young reporters are earnest and they want to, like, they, this is thesis journalism, where you come up with an idea, you go out and you talk to the people who will feed that idea, because if you put that stuff in there yourself, that would be opinion, and that would be wrong, but you talk to people who parrot back your idea, you put the story together, and that, unfortunately, is why there's a lot of bad journalism out there. Right. Thesis journalism, they put a fine point on nothing and make people alarmed that, well, it looks like maybe there's a, a, a difference between Asians and blacks, but there is no difference between. Or, a conservative friend of mine couldn't wait to say, you do know that most of these hate crimes committed against Asians are done by African-Americans. And I'd say, so? Whether or not that's true, what does that mean? So that means Asian-Americans are safer if the hate crime is committed? Well, it's not being done by white people. So? If that's true, so what? What does that mean? Well, everybody talks about how bigoted white people are, and it turns out, you know, they, irrelevant. They, it's irrelevant. It's yeah, and 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 that that's the sort of thing that happens all the time, when uh, in the silos, right? You look to see how people do their journalism, both on the left, on the right, the middle. I guess the New York Times is more like the middle, but um, I, I don't know. I saw that, and I, I so I write about that in my my LDF column. The other thing I do is I write a Christmas story, and tomorrow on my show, on. Um, on the internet, I will be telling the rest of my three trees Christmas story, because uh, trees are very important uh, in the Filipino Christmas tradition, especially the plastic ones. Do, do you have a plastic tree, David? Yes, I do. We cut them down. Uh, yeah, we go to a plastic tree farm. Yeah, that's good. Cut them that's down. Good. They're sustainable I, I, plastic trees. The perpetual evergreen. That's that's the way to go, and. Uh, so I talk about my tree, and I talk, have you ever had an aluminum tree? Uh, no, I've never had a tree. You know, you say Christmas and you've never had a tree, David? No. Aluminum tree. I talk about my aluminum tree tomorrow and the beauty of the aluminum tree. And I also talk about the birth of my first, my first born. Tomorrow. On my show, Emil Amok. And how do we watch that? Oh, you watched it on, on, on. You always say you watch it on Twitter, and I think that may be the best way. Because right. it's there, and you can, like, use your finger on the old Periscope, the graphic right. interface. Right. And, and there it is. But it's also on YouTube, and it's also on Emil Guillermo at Facebook. And, and do, you think, do, you, do you think 2022 is the time to dump Facebook, time to dump data? Because I'm still, I'm still with it. I, I'm not, if I dump Facebook, I'm, on, I'm all in on TikTok. I'm all in on TikTok. I don't know. I don't know. I, I only use Facebook to promote the show, and occasionally, occasionally, I will, you know, get, occasionally you, I'll, get, you know I'll get into a flame war with somebody. 
Okay. I, I don't, I don't, no flame wars. I just, I do it to promote, and that's where the people are, and that, and that's good. Hey, uh, David, I did say that I, I was Catholic. I'm still Catholic, but I, w- I want to say on your show that I'm really have become a devotee. Oh, yeah, that's too strong. I admire Marianne Williamson a lot, and that's just. I, I just see her writing, and I... Uh, she's become a little to the left, more to the left she, than she's ever been. Yeah, she's... Howie Klein loves her. She's endorsing a lot of good progressive candidates, and... She, yeah, she she is surprising, because when I first... Well, I've known about her for a while, but during the debates, right... I thought uh, she's going to be kind of a crackpot, but she was really, I thought, very good in the debates, and then, uh, I mean, still marginalized because she's a, you know, one of those spiritual types. But I've been reading some of her um, more political stuff that she's written within the last six months, and um, A Course in Miracles. I mean, if you want some easy reading, there you go. Mm Mm-hmm. Not bad. I mean, it's as as good a brainwashing tool as the Bible. Do you have crystals? Maybe better. Do you have crystals? Do you have crystals? I I don't have crystals, but I I do in my urinary tract. You you have crystals? In my urinary tract. Ah, I I have a a garland gong and a seaweed sucking otter. I don't have any crystals. I'm sorry. We have to wrap it up. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, God, you know, that Marianne. Do you hear the rumor about Marianne or about Michael Jackson having his plastic surgery to look like Marianne Williams? Is that true? I don't want to start any rumors, but I, I think I heard that a couple of years ago. I thought it was Diana Ross. I think it was Marianne Williamson he wanted to look like. And then and then the fentanyl got him. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, hey, look, Merry Christmas to you, David. Merry my, Christmas my, to you. And yeah. uh, we'll see you next week, I hope. Uh, of course, of course. Yeah. I hope people will join me uh, when I sit, tell my uh, the rest of my three Christmas tree story. And the Reverend Lynn, nice seeing you again also. This is his busy season, so i got to get to him. <laughs> I can tell. It looks we almost kind of match the plant. The plant yeah. Was a plant game. yeah, we do. Emil Guillermo, follow him on Twitter at Emil Luck. Read him over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. If you have some spare cash that you'd like to donate, that's a good cause. They are the Anti-Defamation League of, right? Yeah, yeah, for Asian Americans. Based in New York, out there. Fighting the good fight. Fighting the good fight. And, of course, my friends over at PETA. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, a great and important organization. Thank you, Emil. My best to your your family. And and you you as well. Thank you. Let us now go. It looks like Massachusetts. Are you in Massachusetts? Yes, I am. The Reverend Massachusetts. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us. He is a champion for separation of church and state. For nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for Separation of Church and State. And besides being an attorney, a member of the Supreme Court Bar, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. This is your busy season. This is when you go around door to door, knock on people's doors, and say, have 
Have you heard the news? <laughs> you have? Well, yeah. shut your effing mouth about it. <laughs> right? I've gone with you. We've gone door to door, yeah, shopping balls. Yeah, and we used to do it so much more regularly, but with COVID, it's hard because I used I thought about doing it again this year, but I thought, I'm going to knock on the door, say I have some good news for you, if you can show me proof of vaccination. Oh, I what the hell is wrong with this country? You can get on airplanes without being vaccinated. That's yes. insane. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of going to the West Coast um, in January, but and I have tickets and all that, but I don't know. I'm, it, it, what doesn't... It doesn't freak me out to go on an airplane. It freaks me out to think about getting on the plane, going through the airports with a... Whoa. What happened? I don't know. You sound good. No problems here on our end. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. Well, here we go. Join, leave and join. I don't know. Oh, we lost. We lost. The Reverend, he'll be back. You're listening to the David Feldman Show. There he is. Hang on, unmute. The Reverend Barry W. Wynn, bring him in. There we go. And you can see that I do have a conifer, a Christmas tree, right behind me. It's very small. Mm-hmm. Why do you, why do people buy cut Christmas trees? We buy live trees. And then we sometimes just immediately plant them in somebody's yard, possibly with their permission, or we put them in the ground for a year. That's what I think we're going to do with this one, and then bring them out again next holiday. What a great idea. Yeah. So you, you, you only buy one, and, you know, you, you don't have to – Buy a cut tree. I've never understood well, why people business. buy cut trees. Well, Oregon, it's part of the gross national product or gross state product of Oregon. Mm-hmm. People, Christmas tree farms are big business. But that's a, a great idea to uh, prune a Christmas tree. Just keep pruning it down. It can be. It grows, and then when you're ready to take it out of the ground. Will it survive being planted and replanted over and over again? I don't know over and over again, but I think twice, yes. And you buy one that's small like this one, and then you put it in the ground for a season, and then you you unearth it next holiday season, and you don't have to spend any money at all. This is good. This is a very good thing. Sustainable. Sustainable. You're going to be spending Christmas with your, your grandkids. What is your what is your indulgence? What is Christmas Day? What do you do? Where you say it's Christmas Day, and I'm entitled to blank. Um, let's see, uh, lox and bagels. I'm serious about that. That's what we've had that for I don't know thirty forty years. Bagels and, and orange lox. juice. It's not locks and bagels. I, I, it's bagels <laughs> and locks. <laughs> Whatever it is. Ethan, Ethan, help me. Oh, Ethan was going to come in and correct you. Nobody calls it locks and bagels. What do you, what do you, let me ask you a question. You yeah. take the Nova Scotia 
and puts a bagel in between two slabs of Nova Scotia? Is that how you eat it? <laughs> of course not. So then it's bagels well, and what rocks. Do I know. I well maybe know. you know. Wait, wait, wait a second. So when I was on radio with Pat Buchanan, I was on right before Larry King when he was on in the afternoons, and uh, I. Then I started doing his television show, and the first time I did it, he said, Mary, I used to see you every day. I always thought you were Jewish. I said, why? And he said, because I don't know any non-Jews who are named Barry. He's got a point. Like well, Barack Obama. Yeah, he changed. Barack. Yeah. 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 That's what... Do you know that Barack, let me ask you a question. Yeah, if Ehud Barack, the former Israeli prime minister, marries yes. Barack Obama, what would his name be? If Ehud Barack, let's see if you can answer this yeah. question. You, you're okay. a lawyer and yeah. a minister. Let's see let me, how. Let me write this down. Do the math on this. Okay. Ehud Barack, yeah. who used to hang out at Jeffrey Epstein's apartment. Former okay. Prime Minister of Israel, yeah. if Ehud Barak married yeah. Barack Obama, what would his name be? Let's see if you can get this. Let's see if you can figure this one out. <laughs> Carry the e. He wouldn't have to change his name. He wouldn't. He'd still be Ehud Barak. No. He'd be Ehud Obama. There you go. What? No. There's no right answer. There certainly isn't. There isn't. There are right answers to so many questions, just not that one. Okay, so you have bagels and locks. Yeah, and orange juice. And or that, yeah, that that sounds about right. Yeah, and then you but, want to take a nap. Then you have like something sweet, and then you pass yeah. out for two hours, right? Do you have like a thing yeah. where the kids open up all the presents? Uh, generally, sometimes we let children open one present Christmas Eve. And Christmas Eve is very, I'll tell you what's very important to us traditionally, eat oysters on Christmas Eve. That's sweet. I don't know if it's sweet, but it's tasty. Right. Now, I, in a previous life, uh, was part of an intermarriage. So what mm -hmm. I used to do on Christmas Day was... I would keep score. Like they would hand out a big family and there'd be just like, you know, a hundred kids getting gifts. Sure. And I would keep score as to who got the best gifts. And I would give them, put in, and, yeah. and some people felt triumphant and some kids felt cheated less than, and they started to cry. But I turned Christmas into a competition. One of you is going to get the best prize. These are not gifts. These are prizes. And uh, I would let them know. And then when I gave out my gifts, I would explain why one child is getting a good gift and one child isn't. I think it's important for them to know if they've been good or bad. Wow. That's, you know. Usually Santa does that. You know, Santa says, I give presents to good kids, and then I bring in my friend Krampus uh, to give you bad gifts. And also a whipping. So yeah. there's a, I can see you're a very, very uh, big tradition. I'm more, I, I did like a more Old Testament Christmas. That's how I celebrate. 
I'd like to do the way, you know, Moses in the desert celebrated yeah. Christmas yeah. when yeah. they were leaving Egypt. I, I celebrate Christmas in accordance with Leviticus, how it was handed down. That's good. This was an inter... Well, you, you referred to this as a uh, an intermarriage, I think was the phrase. You yes. With, I was with a man, she was, she was a woman, I was a man. Yeah. It's a mixed marriage. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, my parents yeah. didn't approve. No. You're going to marry out of the gender? <laughs> How are you going to raise the kids? Yeah, intermarriage. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, how are you doing on uh, any romantic relationships? Because, as you know, I've, I've offered, you asked, and I agreed that in the event of another marriage, I would be happy to do it. I'm hanging. You want to talk there. about that? I don't. I don't talk about my okay. personal life. You got to understand, Reverend. And then we, I want to talk about important things. But okay. a man of my stature can't be saddled by one person. The, the women find me so irresistible that yeah. uh, I'm just constantly. Uh, you've seen me do stand-up. Yes, I have. I have. It's like Tom Jones. I'm like Tom Jones. Oh, yeah. Except I throw my panties <laughs> at the audience. The difference is I, instead of panties being thrown my way, I throw my panties to yeah. the audience. That's, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, I'm actually getting in the Christmas spirit. I, I, I'm In all seriousness, I feel very relaxed because I, I don't know why. I, I actually kind of hit me. Things are uh, very quiet and... Mm -hmm. For some reason, I get a sense that people, because the news is just so bad, mm -hmm. that people are being nice to one another, that they're kind of observing what Christmas should be about. I think, to some degree. Yeah, I've noticed that up here. I Humility. Mean, well, and people allow you, there are a lot of really terrible uh, intersections up here near Hanover, Massachusetts. And it's very difficult to get out on the street and go left, for example, from and uh the people will wave you through. Mm -hmm. And and that's great and that's very nice, unless they have failed to notice that there's a car behind them going right. through that could hit you. So you have to be a little careful. But I like the thought of it. I like the support. And I, I'm being serious here. Random acts of kindness. I know you think I'm I've been doing this all weekend. I did, I did it yesterday. I, did, I talked about this on Monday's show. I was waiting in line today to get a cup of coffee, and there was a young couple right behind me. And I, I just turned around, and I said, I'm not going to call you two privileged assholes. I could. I could right now yeah. re recite a litany mm -hmm. of why... You two are privileged assholes, the scum of the earth, everything that's wrong with this mm -hmm. country. But because it's Christmas, I'm going to perform a random act of kindness and not explain to you why you're assholes. And yeah. it felt great. Yeah. They thanked me for that. So <laughs> sure random acts of kindness. I'm sure they did. And they're probably still talking about it yeah. today. Yeah. It, like right now, they're talking. Remember the fellow who... He, he was going to perform a random act of kindness by not telling us how horrible we are. 
And they're probably, they're, they may even be putting it on social media. They may be on Facebook tonight. I mean, I'm sure you didn't ask who they were. No. Because what difference does it but make? Yeah, it's random. It's random. You know, I go outside yeah. most of the time now, and I look at, I catch a glimpse of me in, you know, a storefront window. Mm-hmm. I, like, I think people who have any interaction with me think I'm out of my mind. I look like, yeah, when I go outside, you know, I shave only when necessary, and I dress in ratty. I haven't bought pants in six years, and I I think anything that comes out of my mouth, people just assume this man's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, so... Wait a minute. We've established that you haven't bought a new pair of pants, that you throw all of your underwear at audiences when you do stand-up. I do the show Commando. I'm Commando yeah, right now. Yeah, really? Yeah, wow. completely, except for the shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Now, but why would I buy Tom pants? Jones, it's been six years. Tom Jones opened, didn't he open his shirt a lot? Yes, yeah, he did. He didn't open your shirt. So... That, I don't think the audience could handle that. So let's talk about. I don't think they could either. Let, let's start. Let's, yes. What are some reasons to be happy? Now there are some. COVID, yeah. Omicron. We're being told, while highly contagious, is probably not as bad as we, we've been led to believe. There's a new therapeutic mm-hmm. that uh, is like Tamiflu. Correct. It'll be available to everybody in August. Rapid test. We're going to, they finally realize, oh, maybe we should test for this thing as well. That's right. And all of those are good things. Um, and, but the, the downside, if it is a downside, and uh, the doctor's not here, so I don't want to go into this in detail, but uh, everybody might get this disease eventually. But depending on how many people are vaccinated and how many next iterations of this we have, um, this could be in the long run a good thing. And Walter Reed is working on a a new type of vaccine that can not only vaccinate you, it will inoculate you from COVID, but also they say maybe flus and, and now flus or weren't mRNA flu, uh, flu shots right. past were not mRNA, but now because of COVID, they're going to have more accurate flu shots. If you don't die from this or get very sick, it's mm. it, there's some good news that comes out of this ten years yeah. down the line in terms of yeah. new discoveries. That's true. So, That's true. Oh, that's good, and I um, I hate to say anything good about the future of governments, but um, I think when the Congress gets back, the Senate will have realized that it made a huge mistake in trying to put all kinds of issues that people like us like into one giant bill, which, of course, just allows people to have trouble with one piece of it or another. So that when you fix the th- some of the things that Manchin wanted fixed, then Cinema comes in and says, but I still won't let you raise taxes on corporations. Right. So that's her sticking point. And 
then down the road, there are going to be people who have sticking points about other things. But I do think, and there was an article in the Washington Post uh, yesterday, and I agreed with the sentiments, that there will be a vote on Build Back Better with without the child tax credit to make Mansion happy. They will not increase taxes on corporations, and then cinema will be happy, and then they'll have their 50 votes plus one, and uh, they'll they'll pass it. And then they'll go, and they ought to go, with a child tax credit, which is wildly popular and easily understood by the hundreds, thousand or so people who benefit from it. Um, it and then they pass that, and, and you're almost certain to pick up a couple of Republicans on that. So they're not going to need uh, they're not going to need to be have it filibustered. So there's I think there's a real possibility that in the first few months of the next year there will be something like a Build Back Better bill, which is you know was always a stupid name I thought, and then they'll pass a child tax credit, and uh, that'll get through too. Well, I'm a little so we might actually achieve something. Well, but don't you need the parliamentarian to allow? I think you're only allowed two reconciliation bills. Uh, well, that would be two. So it's another year. It's another fiscal year. And is it like so is it can, like minutes for your phone? Can you carry over into the next year? If you don't. Uh, well, I don't think they have to, because how many. How many things did they pass by reconciliation this year, 2021? Did they pass anything? Was the CARES Act was the CARES Act yeah. reconciliation? I think it was, but it's not. It, but they, you got two more next year, and what I have just described are the two things you ought to be able to pass. And and the parliamentarian, of course, should be fired. I think we started talking about this last right. week. She's been there for. I think a decade, and uh, you don't get to just pick anybody as a parliamentarian. They couldn't pick you or me because there's a whole parliamentarian school that people go through in the hopes that they are eventually chosen to be the Senate parliamentarian. So it's not easy, but there's still no reason to have to feel like you must listen to everything that the parliamentarian says. He or she, in this case she, could be wrong. And you right. could just say, you're fired. Right. Right. So you're saying that they have to disentangle these omnibus bills, these big budget bills, and have people vote on each issue one by one, uh, even without reconciliation, like a voting rights act, a vo you know, voting rights bill. That it seems to me that Pelosi and Schumer, if they have any hopes of going back in, into the majority in 2023, they have to put all these bills up for a vote, thumbs up, thumbs down, and tell the American people what they stand for. You know, have it get rejected. Of course. It's an extremely good tactic to do that. But, but this idea, because nobody even, to this day, nobody even knows what's in the Build Back Better bill. Although right. it's, it's better now, more people have some vague idea about it. 
But this is like the old Tonight Show when they send somebody out in the street. Uh, how many branches of government do we have? People don't know anything. They ask them what's in the Build Back Better bill. They might have vague ideas. There's something about kids, something about pre-K. But they never spent any time explaining what it was, was. And it was so big, and it included so many controversial matters, controversial uh, it, just to people who are kind of in the political middle. And they don't understand, well, why are we doing something to help the environment, but at the same time we're trying to have pre-K. Just take one issue and force these votes on it. It's not too late to do that, and it's good, as you point out, to be able to say, here are the things we tried to do, and here are the things that your senator, talking about Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania, he refused to vote for it. Now, we, whoever the candidate is who's a Democrat, they all claim to be real Democrats. There are three viable candidates in Pennsylvania. They say, I would have, I would have passed this. I would have voted for this. Vote for me if you like this, this idea, and then talk about it. Right. Got it. I mean, it, this is not rocket science, but it's just communication science. And I hate these. I hate CNN constantly puts up pictures of all the Democrats who are retiring or trying to get into higher office. And, and the implication is they have seen the end of Democrats in the House, and they're all quitting. And I think that's, I think CNN wants Donald Trump to be back in office. He's a hell of a lot more interesting than Joe Biden for television. And I think they want him back. And worst case scenario. Yeah. What happens if Trump becomes president? What happens if Trump has, as he did up until... 2019, the Senate, the House of Representatives, and the White House. What happens? And how bad, except for, I'm going to ask you a foolish question. Looking back, it was bad. It was chaotic. Uh, What did he get away with? Looking back at those four years, what the, the tax cut for the wealthy, yeah, the storming of the storming of the Capitol, uh, trying to steal an election, uh, using his office to, you know, hold up become wealthy for his entire family. Yes. Yeah, holding yeah, up holding up money to Ukraine for dirt on Joe Biden. Yeah, uh, he stirred up. He definitely made it easier for white nationalists to make life uncomfortable for people of color. To, you know, if you were Arab or Hispanic, sure. Sure. Uh, the gloves were off. Are the undocumented workers, is life easier for undocumented workers right now compared to what it was under Trump? Feels like, no. feels like they're in the same position, but Biden isn't relishing their pain. Same things are going no. on, right? 
Well, yeah, although some of this, you know, courts have ordered him to continue certain immigration policies. I don't know exactly which ones that he wanted to stop so that, and this is, you know, this is part of my constant complaint about the corruption of the federal judiciary. And one of the things that could happen, of course, is he could easily get one more person on the court. So it would be a seven to two conservative majority. And there are, I just learned just the other day of a really important Supreme Court case that hasn't been argued yet involving the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. And without getting into the weeds, but basically it's a challenge to the idea that the Congress can pass a statute and then allow agencies to have delegated authority to figure out how to achieve something, right. like emissions controls. And um, it's a precedent. Biden, it was a precedent established where they, the Supreme Court said, when it comes to legislation involving cabinet level agencies, the Supreme Court will play second fiddle to the interpretation of the agency. They'll interpret the law first. Yeah. Right. And the Supreme Court says we'll we'll back off unless you really want to challenge this. Right. And that's why this case is so important, because in the long view of it, what they could say is that this kind of discretion given to agencies is itself unconstitutional. So this has implications not just in the environmental arena, but in health care, too. In other words, if you had to write a statute that indicated exactly how you would, in the event that we ever got around to covering hearing aids, for example, you'd have to specify exactly what you could what what you could charge for them and how you would distribute them and that this is crazy. Congress is too damn lazy to stay in you know session long enough to write the general bills, right. to think that they're going to write specific bills about everything, or c carbon emissions. Can you imagine with 435 members of the House trying to figure out exactly what the requirements of CO emissions would be? That's impossible. So there's a gentleman's agreement that these, law these laws that are passed will be administered by the administrative state, and then each administration would have its own different interpretation unless it's taken all the way to the Supreme Court. But what we have now is a court that's been handpicked by the Federalist Society, whose goal is to dismantle the administrative state and reduce Washington, take Washington back to Herbert Hoover before the New Deal. They they think the golden age of government was pre-Roosevelt when there was no administrative state and that Washington was a small town. That's their goal is to make Washington small enough to drown in a bathtub. And if you dismantle the regulatory powers of the regulators, everybody's going to go home and there won't be 3.2 yeah. million people working for the executive branch. Yeah. That's the goal. That is their goal. That is their goal. Yeah. yeah. And uh, with the Supreme Court, they're likely to be handed 
some new ammunition in moving it in exactly that direction. So we're not going to just have to worry about religious schools getting tax dollars and handguns being available in the subways of New York City, but we got to worry about big systemic problems. And, of course, just the other day, the Supreme Court agreed on January 7th to have a kind of emergency session to consider the constitutionality of the COVID mandate for companies that have 100 or more employees. And, uh, you know, it's very bad news when a, a decision, in this case from the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is you know, relatively conservative, but when the Supreme Court agrees to hear it, they usually agree to hear decisions they disagree with so they can reverse them. And I, so that, and that would be, that would be horrendous because right. you really can't. I mean, I'm really on this tear and I wasn't kidding when I talked about why is it that you can get on an airplane without having proof that you were vaccinated. I mean, when we saw a couple of weeks ago West Side Story, we had a show, we have one nonprofit movie theater in Washington, D.C., and it does require, and they're very strict about this, that you prove that you have a vaccination card, that you've been vaccinated, and um, you don't get in. They don't sell you a ticket unless you show them your card. And that's, that's in a movie theater. It ought to be that way in everything, in any way. And I understand, you know, that they're still doing the ball drop, I guess, in Times Square. They're going to require that all those people who go to be vaccinated, and uh, they're going to restrict the numbers of people. But to tell you the truth, I, I don't, I think the mayor, possibly even the your soon-to-be new mayor, are making a big mistake to have this massive group of people come on New Year's Eve to watch the ball fall. You could do that on television like they did last year. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, would you, you go? I'm sorry, would you go? Would you go to Times Square to see the ball drop? Uh, I, I would never go, you know, in the best of times. There okay. is a feeling, especially among young people, if you're young, there are two thoughts. One is they need to work, they need money, they're willing to sacrifice some of their health in order to pay the bills. I mean, there 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 is an economic consequence to shutting down the economy because of COVID. So, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. Nobody's making money at the ball drop in Times Square except the people who sell funny hats and horns. I mean, it's not like, I'm not suggesting you'd have to be vaccinated in order to go to work, but I'm just saying when you but have it's a television option, show. I mean, the, the ball drop, there's a lot of commerce involved in that. People on New Year's Eve, they just don't go to Times Square to hang out, and, and they, they buy alcohol, they buy cigarettes, and you know party streamers, and they go have dinner first. I mean, it's a big night for restaurants. So I think 
I could see, I can, I can understand why somebody who's in their 30s says, I have to, I have to pay my bills. Uh, the eviction moratorium is over. In three months, mm -hmm. I got to pay back my student loans. Um, double vax. I got my booster. I might get this, but it will be, won't be a death sentence. Uh, am I going to live the rest of my life as a hermit? I, I, I do understand that. And it's easy for some people, uh, you know, uh, uh, Catherine Liu, author of Virtue Hoarders, talks about how people who, she says there's a certain type of person whose job is answering emails. People, mm -hmm. there's a certain type of yeah. people whose job it is, is just answering emails. Uh, I'm a comedy writer. I'm lucky enough where I'm basically answering emails or going on Zoom. Not everybody has that luxury. So, not I, I'm not. I'm, I don't sympathize with the anti-vaxxers, and I don't sympathize with Ron DeSantis. But I do sympathize with people who can't make ends meet who say, you know what, I'm willing to sacrifice my, I'm going to play play the odds here. I have to support myself. You know? I, I, I still don't see the connection, notwithstanding, yes, people can go to dinner and they do. But, of course, you don't go to dinner. If you go to the ball drop, you better be there in the morning. You better understand that there are no bathrooms there, all of those indignities. But you... There's no bathroom at the ball drop? No. You, you have to be able to hold your bodily fluids, as I understand it, from the time you get into the area until they let you out of the, uh, the giant holding pen around the ball drop. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. So there's something more than a ball dropping. It could be. <laughs> so then... It could be. But I, um, That's insanity. Yeah, I know. It's, I, I have reason. to pee just now that you tell me that I have to pee. Yeah, I know. Just the thought of well, it makes me have to pee. You can leave if you need to. But <laughs> I, can, I mean, look, it's... Uh, it's um, if they told... Okay, so Joanne and I have gone, not just a West Side Story, but we went to a movie on our way up here to Massachusetts. We stopped and saw one of my last living relatives and then we, we what, what, right who's across. in that? Who's in that? Who? My last living one of my yeah, last living relatives. Bill. My my cousin. Bill. Oh, I thought it was a movie. Like West Side <laughs> so you said we saw no, one of my last living relatives. I thought it was a movie. <laughs> Nightmare Alley. <laughs> we saw Nightmare Alley. Which led me to question why in the world are we remaking all of these movies now something like West Side Story it was a it was the, the casting was so horrible Maria of course is supposed to be Puerto Rican was played by Natalie Wood um, and there's a, a wonderful woman who, who in fact is Puerto Rican who's already been nominated for a couple of prestigious awards she can actually sing Natalie Wood never sang in that movie there's somebody dub all the songs mm -hmm. And uh, but you know you you get to the end and you go okay the casting is better 
But why did they really need to make it? Why did Steven Spielberg decide this was the movie he was going to make again? And we had the same feeling with a movie I really liked. Um, I like the original Nightmare Alley, which takes place in a carnival, which is about it's, it, the premise involves geeks. I never saw a geek because by the mid-50s, when I was obsessed with carnivals and fairs, they had already outlined this. And the benefit of people who don't know what a geek is, these are people, usually male alcoholics, who are told, uh, we'll give you a job. All you have to do is go into this pit with a chick, couple of chickens and conceal a razor blade in your hand and cut off the neck of the chicken, it'll give the appearance that you're biting it off. And then, of course, you do that for a couple of months, and then the carnival boss comes and says, you know, it, we really need you to literally use your mouth and bite the chicken's head off. And, and that's kind of the premise of Nightmare Alley. And it's um, and it was a wonderful movie. It had Tyrone Power in. I think it was made in uh, the late '40s. And you know, it's a perfectly fine movie. This one is a little more graphic. It's a little. It it shows a li- in a little more detail. You know, I don't do spoilers, but how bad it is that this guy who's a con artist, mentalist, who claims that he can communicate with the dead. Just how sinister it is and what the terrible consequences of that kind of uh, fraudulent activity can be. And it's very graphic, but which it wasn't in the 1940s version. But, you know, did it need to be remade? I mean, does, does Hudson Hawk need to be remade? Does, uh, you know, really, do we need to start, how about Santa Claus Conquers the Martians? Maybe we should remake that too. And, you know, this is, so what have you been watching? What do you watch? Because you are a big fan of movies. What, yeah. what what do you recommend? Well, I mean, I love Tick, Tick, Boom, which is another musical about Jonathan Larson, the guy who wrote the play Rent. This is about his earlier life before Rent even opened. And I found, I mean, it's just absolutely stunning movie. I liked, um, I, although I don't like most of Jane Campion's movies, I like The Power of the Dog which is, uh, these are both streaming on various services. You don't even have to go out to see them. And um, Have you seen Being the Ricardos? I I started to watch that, and I really liked it. Oh, my God. Oh, it's one of the biggest pieces of crap. (laughs) It's Aaron Sorkin at his best, which means it's a piece of crap. It's a great thing to hate watch. It is so, it is so horrible. Well, my television broke, so I only got through half of it. But here, and Aaron Sorkin is a strange character because you either love or hate the writing. You obviously hate it. When he did the trial of the Chicago Seven, not good. There's an or what? Not good. Well, it, no, well, it, it's if you don't know anything about that time and you don't know anything about what's true and what's not true in the story. Um, you know, I could see you going, yeah, that's interesting, very powerful. But if you did, as I did in the new David Dellinger, for example, and in the movie of the Chicago 7, he's portrayed as having a fight with a guard in the courtroom. And, of course, he was a total pacifist. And I, I was, uh, I watched a, uh, 
a webinar with some of the participants, including uh, Rennie Davis and the daughter, you know, the daughter of Dave Dellinger. And she said that all of the things in the film about her dad were just complete lies. For example, she was his daughter. In the movie, Sorkin has a guy, a son for him. And Dave Dellinger is presented as a guy who uh, coached Little League. And his daughter said he never was interested in baseball. He never coached Little League. But these are all things that were set up. And Well, you're a lawyer. You're a lawyer. Why do you think Aaron Sorkin takes liberties with the story? I know. I think I know why. You have to take liberties with a true story. Otherwise, it opens you up to a lawsuit. If you have these blatant liberties that are taken with the truth, you then can't be sued for misrepresenting you know, you're, you can't be accused of slander or libel. You have to take a true story and alter it just enough so the people who were involved in that story can't sue you. Because um, your defense is, we took a lot of liberties. We took a lot of liberties in this. Yeah. I don't, I don't think, though, that, that that's the thing that was motivating. I just think it is, in fact, if you want to do a story and you want to show that this world famous, you know, Dave Dellinger was, you know, pacifist before there were pacifists. And uh, I don't think Sorkin's going, yeah, no, he might sue us if we, so let's make up really bad things about him instead of just altering things a little bit. I mean, that scene in the movie is completely unnecessary. There's no reason. You could show him getting angry, but you don't have to show a guy who is a dedicated, lifelong pacifist grabbing a guard or appearing to slug him. You don't need to do that. Right. You don't need to do that. I don't think he's worried about that. I think it's just it's it's a it's a better story conventionally if he fights back. Right. And if he, and if he's seen as a guy who's such an everyman that he even coached his son who doesn't exist, Little League. Well, you got to watch Being the Ricardos. It's up there with Showgirls in terms of it being horrendous. Do you remember a show called Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip? It was Aaron. No. So- there were two uh, sitcoms that came out that tried to capture uh, life behind the scenes at Saturday Night Live. One was Aaron Sorkin doing Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, and then there was 30 Rock. 30 Rock was fantastic because Tina Fey told her story, or a version of it, whereas Aaron Sorkin knows as much about the inner workings of Saturday Night Live as he does the West Wing of the White House. And he just took liberties with what he fantasized producing a live comedy show is like with and had the annoying walks and talks and it was so heavy handed and pompous. Studio sixty on the Sunset Strip. If you're a comedy writer, there's not a single mm-hmm. professional comedy writer who doesn't think Studio sixty on the Sunset Strip is as bad as 30 Rock is good. 
It's just a joke. And it's just this pompous, self-serving look at comedy as though it's as important as serving in the Oval Office. It's just, you know, it's just heavy-handed. This is what being the Ricardos is. It's as bad good as Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. And he tries to portray Lucille Ball. He puts... he. He tries to portray Lucille Ball like she's Charlie Chaplin trying to solve the city lights scene with the blind girl figuring out who gave her the rose. And there's this great documentary. There have been several documentaries about Chaplin trying to figure out that move in city lights. And Aaron Sorgan decides to steal that to explain how Lucille Ball worked. It's so pompous, so self-serving, uh, so bogus. But most importantly, the biggest crime that Aaron Sorkin commits is J. Edgar Hoover is the hero of this story. J. Edgar Hoover is the hero of being the Ricardos. It is so tone-deaf, so wrong on every level, and fascinating to watch because yeah. Nicole Kidman almost makes it as Lucy mm. as, as in her day-to-day -day life. But yeah. when Nicole Kidman, who is one of the greatest actresses exactly. ever, ever, yeah. when she tries to be Lucy, who was the greatest, it's like Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Lucille Ball, can't get any better than that. And you really begin to realize what a genius Lucille Ball is when you watch Nicole Kidman trying to do the grape-crushing scene. They recreate mm -hmm. the grape-crushing yeah. scene. That's about when my television broke. And did you, I have fixed it, so I'm going to, you know... It's, it's now, fascinating. Yeah. She doesn't even come, like, one one-hundredth close to Lucille Ball's comedic ability. Right, right. It's just fascinating to to watch how bad it is. Yeah. You know? Aaron Sorkin well, is, you know. So aside from that, <laughs> no, so we, we like Showgirls. I recommend being the Ricardo. I love Showgirls. I know. I'm, it's the like, only, I'm the only person on earth, except for my wife, who also like. And yet, who is the... What's her name? Elizabeth Berkeley? Yeah. Is that the woman who... And Joe Esterhaus. Yeah, but Elizabeth Berkeley was in the movie. And she, she... I, When I was doing radio, I had her on my radio show once. And I, I said that so many people had criticized Showgirls. I said, but you know, my wife and I sat there. I think we were the only people in the theater. Everyone hated it. But I thought that it was actually a pretty powerful statement about the exploitation of women in Vegas. And Elizabeth Berkeley literally started to cry on the air. She said, I've, nobody's ever said that. Nobody's ever affirmed anything. And she, Elizabeth Berkeley then went on to run a, a women's empowerment nonprofit. And, uh, but I, you know, it's, I realize I'm, in a very small You're barking room. up the wrong pole. <laughs> you were barking up the wrong pole. The wrong pole. <laughs> uh, 
<clears throat> there are three. There are three great movies beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Mm-hmm. It's a miracle. Have you ever seen Beyond the Valley of the of Dolls? Of course, of course. It, it is. It, you, know, so it's, you, you don't hate watch it. It's it's just something. The badness is precious. It's, yeah. it's precious how bad it is. Where you just go, oh my God, this is a miracle <laughs> of badness from start. Uh, the Oscar and the prize. I'm not, what, what was Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. in? Was he um, the Oscar or the prize? Another what's one. What's the prize about? Maybe it's about the Oscar. If it comes on, it, it's just so good. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's and, a good train wreck is what you're saying. You know, and... Uh, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, if you're a comedy writer, is just rivetingly horrible. And being the Ricardos, it's a it's a master's class in schlock. It really is. And, you know, well, West Wing, I can still watch the West mm-hmm. Wing and get the chills, you know, that fantasy world of... Yeah. Uh, but, uh, boy, being the Ricardos... I, I could watch it again. Well, it's so bad. Yeah. Well, now that I have my TV working, uh, we will watch the ending, possibly even right after we're finished here. And just so we, I can tell you whether you're right or wrong at the end. Well, they make Jay Edgar Hoover the hero at the end. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking into that. You know, that I'll give it a fair trial. That I don't understand. So, and go ahead. Well, we, have, we have five yeah. more minutes. Okay. Um Last week you asked me, you said that a listener had asked about... Uh, yes. Yeah, and I, I I, did a lot of reading uh, of their materials, and, but I don't have time to talk about it. But next week I would like to talk about it because here is a religious right organization that has been pretty effective already, has bigger plans, and has what the Democratic Party and most liberal groups don't have, a plan to get from a to be, to see. And I'll, but I'll talk about it in a little more detail. Right, next what week. the Democrats are missing. Yes. Uh, Jeff Green, a billionaire, Mormon, he left the Mormon church 10 years ago, and he wrote a letter this week to the Mormon church saying, take my name off all your buildings Give me back my records. I don't want anything to do with you. And uh, to prove it, I'm giving $600,000 to an LGBTQ uh, political rights organization. Did you hear about that? Yes, yes. And, um, but um, I think the only, I think I'm only in the Internet movie database with about two movies, one of which was The Mormon Proposition. And I'm in that for a few seconds, uh, a few minutes, I guess. And uh, But it, it it's a movie that shows how much the Mormon Church did to pass really bad anti-gay legislation in the state of California. And it's, it's an interesting documentary. Eight. Talk about eight. Proposition eight. Which they blamed yeah. on black people. They blamed it. Yeah, but it, but it was all the Mormon Church money 
had a huge, huge role to play right. in that. It's interesting. Emil and I were talking about Asian hate crimes, and they're trying to blame them on black people. And I remember the anti-gay, you know, eight in California, this must have been 12 years ago, when they voted to not legalize same-sex marriage. Yeah. And they blamed the black churches yeah. in, in California for killing gay marriage when, in fact, it was the Mormon church, which didn't allow black people in until, what, 1978, 1979? Yeah. Yeah, a change of uh, a change of heart. Yeah, and um, and, I, and part of the I know I, I saw this. I didn't even know it was in this film, but I saw it at the American Film Institute, and there were a bunch of gay activists who were there to comment on it. And one of them, who I guess had had been a Mormon, but he thought that the same kind of words of wisdom would come eventually to the Mormon church leadership about their anti-gay activities as their anti-black activities. That he was he was perhaps overly optimistic about it, but he, uh, he was convinced that eventually um, they would see the truth, and that the truth included not being so hostile to the gay community. We'll see if that ever happens. Religion ruins everything. I was, you know, like Gabriel... Uh, Boric says he's like this 34-year-old socialist who just got elected president of Chile. And uh, I'm reading about him, and I'm like, ah, this is so great, that was so great. And then you read that the that Chile's Jewish community is terrified of him because they sent him a gift for the Jewish New Year, and he wrote back, you want to give me a gift? Uh you know, give the Palestinians a homeland. <laughs> Israel's a killing a nation of killers. And I thought, boy, you know, it's like, can I, can I have one week where I'm feeling good just, yeah. you know, about something and have a Jewish community in Chile is terrified of, and I think this is why the left, uh, Anyway, uh, well, yeah, the left. It's um. Well, we'll talk a little about this next week. Yeah, it's hard to be a leftist. Yeah, well, it it's not necessarily hard, but it is. Some would say hard to convince other people to join us. It, it's almost as though there should be a separation between our religious beliefs and the public square. It's almost as though politics should have nothing to do with people's religion. Have you ever yeah. thought about that? Yeah, I think I read a book about it once. But, read or uh, wrote? <laughs> I, a little of both. Boy, you're... I'm ready to get I'm finally paid to piss people off. The book, it, it's, it's almost ready to go to the editor. I mean, and I'm sending some excerpts to a couple of people, but I'm kind of thinking maybe I should just self-publish. The thing is so long, it's so detailed, and how many people are going to buy it? You know, how many people are going to buy it? Maybe they don't care. Maybe I could come on. I, I do actually want to do a reading for office hours 
sometime in the next couple of weeks. Well, I would love that. A little piece of it. We would love that. Because I've done it. I've done two, and I actually the the feedback from listeners and viewers has been extremely helpful. So well, I'd like to do it. Again. We're going to be here Christmas Eve doing office hours. Yeah, I will not be. I I did let people know I could not do it. I think we're going to do The Godfather, a table read of The Godfather. Really? Yeah. The Reverend Barry W. Go to barrywlin.com for a treasure trove of his appearances and some of his sermons. We didn't really get to talk about what Christmas means to you, uh, probably because I don't care. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Uh, Merry Christmas. Merry, 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 merry Christmas. Merry, merry, merry. And I do and that. I, I, I happy wish you, holidays to everybody. Don't you happy holiday me. Don't patronize. <laughs> don't you, merry Wait Christmas. I have no problem. Do you have a problem with Merry Christmas? <laughs> no. No, you know, when I used to do Fox all the time, and, it, and I did endless shows about the war on Christmas, and how would I know that the war on Christmas would get so intense in 2021, that someone would burn down the one half a million dollar fake tree right outside the Fox offices in New York City. Who would have thought of that? And you know who burned it down? A man who had no home and who was not, he wasn't even put out on bail. And, and what would uh, Jesus say? He'd say, um, Burn, baby, burn. Burn, baby, burn. <laughs> hey, it's the holiday of life. Thank you. Of course it is. So light it on fire. Burn. burn. <laughs> Thank you, Reverend. Thank you. And my best to all of your, your wife and, and everybody. And Thank you. enjoy the grandkids. I don't know oh, why, but enjoy them. <laughs> I think it's a waste of time. The Reverend Barry W. <laughs> You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com, and it's time now for the professors and Mary Ann. I'm bringing them in right now. Uh, we have Professor Mary Ann Cummings, who is a physicist and a parks commissioner in Aurora, Illinois. We have Professor Ann Lee. We have Professor Jonathan Bick, and we have Professor Adnan Hussein, and I will give everybody a proper introduction uh, once we get everybody in. Thank you all for showing up. I know this is uh, m- normal people uh, are, you know, with family or uh, depressed. So uh, I'm glad everybody's here. L- let me just ask, judging by backgrounds, I see that Professor Bick, Professor Lee are in their usual setting. It looks like Professor Hussein is in a more, I don't know, rustic, I don't know, it looks, and Professor, let me ask Professor Marion Cummings, I know you were driving through COVID. You said you there was a COVID storm? You have to unmute yourself. So I think, I'm going to guess that Professor Cummings and Hussein are not in their home. That is correct. You're in Michigan, and I'm going to suggest that Adnan Hussein is somewhere. Oh, that's right. You emailed me, so you're in Connecticut. I'm in Connecticut. That's right. Okay. 
Are we happy? Well, I'm happy to be with uh, my in-laws. Um, and, um, you know, so that's positive. I was hoping to see my sister in New York City, but um, with the Omicron storm uh, that um, Professor Marianne, you know, mentioned um, driving through to get to Detroit, um, it, everything seems to be, you know, shut down. So um, any possibility to see family and friends in New York City seems impossible, dangerous. It's impossible to find a PCR test. You can't get a PCR test in the tri-state area. Um, you can't get the results back, you know, within the 72 hours that you need in order to return and cross the border. So, you know, yeah, there, there's that's a rapid, that looks like a rapid antigen yeah. test. Yeah, those seem to be also few and far between. Um, we happen to have a box that somebody gave us, and I feel like if I went down to Times Square and waved it around, I could probably get a thousand bucks from this box. Right. <laughs> right. Twenty. So it seems like the you know COVID is is resurging in a in through this Omicron, and it's just um, timed perfectly to make um, holiday cheer kind of dicey. So I'm happy, but I could be happier. Right. Right. Professor Marianne, you would think that Ron Klain, the chief of staff, who is supposed to be the genius behind fighting Ebola in the Obama administration, they would have bought 500 million rapid tests uh, back in February of this year. Why are they? Why well, did they wait? Back in October, I believe it's back in October. But apparently in October, the Biden administration rejected a proposal for, like, hundreds of millions of these rapid tests being made available right before the Christmas holidays. And that's just frustrated everybody. And then I just saw the coverage in Vanity Fair um, just came out today that described this. It seemed like, you know, it, as much as the rhetoric was different, it's they have amazingly similar focus to the Trump administration. The Trump administration was get the vaccine out, get the vaccine developed, get people back, and get people back to work and open everything up. And, you know, the idea of just a, a universal lockdown with everybody being supported with UBI and guaranteed, and guaranteed income and surety for all the small businesses, that seems to have been completely beyond our capacity. So even something as simple as, you know, just just have people have masks and tests. I mean, you could we can ramp up. We're rich. You can do this. And, uh, and in fact, it looks like uh, experts in their own administration were urging them to do that. And they just kind of rejected it. They thought, well, you know, we're going to be vaccinated enough. And, and it also, they didn't want, apparently, to be sending mixed signals that, you know, if, if they were telling people to gear up, you know, for a Christmas surge, that might, you know, give the impression that they hadn't quite gotten on top of COVID. Right. Let me yeah. ask Professor Ann Lee. Yeah. Uh, if you're born in France, you get a, you get uh swag 
Like the, your mother is sent home with a care package and free health care and all this emergency preparedness stuff. Uh, yeah. My mind immediately goes to, well, the French then probably sent masks out to everybody. They sent tests out to everybody. And then you read about how other countries have handled this crisis. They're just as bad, if not worse, than the United States. They that other industrialized world, other industrialized countries that surpass us in safety nets blew this as well. So this is not a strictly American conceit. Is that fair? Well, that, that's fair, but the, the, it's a trade-off. In other words, if, we'd, if, if the Biden administration had gone sending out uh, lots of test kits, and, and uh, of course Biden said today, oh, gee, I wish I had, you know, I had pushed to get a half billion kits out, blah, blah, blah. The reality, of course, is that if you send the kits out, more people will travel, and when more people travel, you're going to get a, a larger spread. I mean, I think that there's a, a, an epide epidemiological trade-off between mm -hmm. those two elements. Um, so you're saying that people would get the tests, uh, some of them would take it, some of them wouldn't, but it would create the illusion that this thing is under control. Yeah, and it would be worse because then you'd, you're going to get, and, and in fact, because people are doing it anyway, they're traveling anyway, the, the, the data says that uh, people traveling the road yesterday or today is higher than it was last year anyway. So, you know, the, people are going to travel anyway. So that's a, another issue. But in terms of, of mass tran transport, I, you know, that's what they're trading it off against. And, and then on the other hand, uh, you know, they're – yeah, they're mishandling it, but I, you know, I like to think that they're doing a slightly better job than, than the entire disinformation campaign and the attempt to weaponize it and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and in fact, that's interesting as well. Uh, the, the kind of fracture with, with Trump being sort of abandoned by some of his, you know, being getting booed by his followers. You tell everybody what happened. That's fascinating. Well, there's, after he admitted with uh, uh, Bill O'Reilly in uh, Texas that, you know, they were doing a little back and forth and trying to appear all correct about it and that they'd both been triple, triple vaccinated, there were, there were boos in the audience. You know, they were doing their little road show and people booed and not an insignificant number of people booed. And then on the Internet, on, on Twitter, they decided that, Trump had been replaced by a clone, which makes no logical sense. But it's quite amusing that, that, that you know, there, it must be CGI or something, you know. And if they had cloned him, he wouldn't be full-sized, you know. It's just, it, it, it makes no damn sense. And why would he come back sort of looking as, you know, terrible as he does? Um, you yeah. know, if Trump had any, any control over it. He'd look so, like Pompeo anyway. does these days. All right. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's fortunately you know not not gone very far. But but the the reality is, of course, that there are Trumpists who you know are, are kind of annoyed by this. They're they're really quite uh, committed to being anti-vax.
Right. Professor Jonathan Beck? Hi, David. The fact that Omicron is around our necks, Omicron is around our necks, and yet Americans are, you know, Professor Marianne and Professor Hussein, they, they go and they see family and loved ones, that they have to be around their loved ones. Is there not something uh, human about that, that we are social animals, that we are willing to risk our lives? Is there not something beautiful about people ha having to be around loved ones this time of year, even though there is a risk? Doesn't, isn't there something almost for, can't you forgive? Or that maybe Professor Marianne and Professor Hussain want to kill their loved ones and spread the fire. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's what they told me, but I didn't <laughs> um, Yeah, no, I mean, there is no doubt that human beings are social animals, and uh, to try to deny that uh, causes a lot of misery and a lot of problems. Um, you know, uh, Margaret Thatcher famously said, uh, you know, that society doesn't exist. And, and basically, the Thatcher-Reagan uh, approach to life is to have atomized people, uh, homo uh, economists, you know, everyone competing against one another and only looking after their own narrow self-interest. Uh, that's been disastrous. And I think we see the results of that in our response to the uh, COVID crisis. Uh, I mean, there, there are countries in the world that have dealt with this better than the United States and most of Europe. Um, China, if you believe the figures there, uh, they, that's where the virus started. Uh, they have fewer than 5,000 deaths. The United States has over 800,000. China has five times our population, or thereabouts. Right. So, I mean, if you look at it that way, the U.S. is a failed state uh, compared to that response in, in China. Uh, they were willing to take drastic measures. I mean, people are going around saying, oh, the shutdowns don't work. They work if you shut down the country. Not if you shut down part of a state here, part of a state there, one state here, and then lift it, and then the whole thing, you know, the virus moves around the entire country from one place to the next. Uh, but what about Great Britain? I, I mean, when you look at the EU, you're seeing a similar crisis, aren't we? So the argument yeah. would be made, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing, the argument is, well, we value freedom, so freedom of movement, freedom of choice, and that that's the argument that 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 Great Britain has this doesn't Great Britain have the same problem if not worse than we're having? Yes, and what about and Canada? Canada? doesn't Canada have the same problem if not in many cases in many countries in Europe as well so is, the, is, is it fair to say not that we are a freer society than say China? Oh, I think we are. And, and with that comes the freedom to assemble and to evaluate the risk. And Because so, I did it over the weekend and last night. Leslie and I went out to dinner with Eddie Brill, an old friend. And, I, and it was, you know, I, I, I thought, I'm going to risk it. I'm going to 
I'm going to do it. I have to, I can't keep, you know, uh, you take, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, I understand. I Believe me, I understand. Um, it's just a, a question of, you know, should you be doing it when this new variant is out there and it's surging? I don't know. Uh, but they're saying, again, I, I'm not going into Joe Rogan territory. I wish I'd give anything to <laughs> Uh, but uh, they're saying that Omicron is not as lethal as the Delta virus, the Delta mutation. They're saying that if you're fully vaxxed, you're not going to die from this. And it's it's very unlikely that you'll die if you if you have uh, three shots, right? If you right. have the the full shot and the booster, yeah. Um, but so, again, we don't we don't know the long term risks of this, right? There's no way to know that. So a lot of people suffer from uh, long term COVID symptoms. Uh, you have to take that into consideration. And I don't know if we've had enough time to definitively know that this variant is less lethal than the other variants. All right, so I'll change the subject, but let me bring up Great Britain during the Blitz. One of the things that they took pride in, Professor Marianne, was the West End of London continued to put on plays while the Germans were bombing. People were willing to go to the theater, even though they were sitting ducks. And the royal family did not leave. And the royal family and, and Buckingham Palace got bombed. And to this day, I know uh, the last time I, I was there, I visited the um, Albert and Victoria Museum, or maybe I got that the other way around, but um, there's a whole wall that is all pockmarked with bombs that they had not that they have not repaired and they kind of deliberately keep that up as a kind of memorial to, you know, basically we, we, we muddled through even as the Jerry's were bombing us. Um, right. And in Britain, I think there is uh, very similarities to our population, to uh, our demographics, at least age-wise. Um, but the one big difference between Great Britain and ourselves is that they have a national health care system as under assault as it has been for the last several decades, especially with Tories in church. Um, I was just checking the um, Worldometer's uh, website, and it turns out that America is by far the uh, lead, the industrialized world in terms of deaths per millions from the variant. I mean, there's a clutch of third-world countries worse than we are. A lot of them are very small, and uh, some Eastern European countries that are just now, but a lot of them are just now seeing the big surge in COVID. They had, didn't deal with it last year because it wasn't really prevalent this year. The variants were something that they just could not deal with. So I think that, and, and I'm looking with fingers crossed because at, at, at Britain's figures because they're two weeks ahead of us in terms of the Omicron 
uh, I'm, I'm, I'm being Joe Biden here, Omicron taking over, um, and their death rate hasn't risen. Yeah, so and the same thing with South Africa, their death rate, now we don't know, I think I think Professor John and our, our friend Henry Hamamaki would caution us too. He says we don't know how the you know how the illness plays out it could have a longer lead time you know it could take longer to die if you're if it's going to be fatal in you so um you know so we have to just be very careful um i'm the only kid here in my parents house i mean there's nobody else here and we're, we're just kind of all keeping um mostly distanced uh, my parents are triple vaxxed i'm triple vaxxed but um you know, it, it may very well be. I mean, the sunny side of this is that if this is this variant is uh, not as lethal and is as mild as they say, and the all the unlike the original uh, uh, COVID, I mean, it's very much like a common cold, and many people don't even know they have it because the the symptoms are so similar to a common cold. You know, sneezy, runny nose, scratchy throat, cough, things like that, but nothing too much more serious, like struggling to breathe for several days on end. Um, that might just be how it kind of inoculates against itself. If that much milder version is that much more contagious and displaces the Delta. So. Yeah. So what's hard to find is um, there's a, a, a couple sites, a couple people that have been tracking it who have uh, YouTube channels that, you know, and they're, they're tracking, in the UK they track which one is Omicron and which one is, is uh, Delta. And the Delta hasn't quite gone away. It's persisting. They thought that it would be con continuous, you know, it would just continuously uh, uh that go down, the number of cases with Delta would go down quite precipitously in the habit that they've persisted. That's a little bit of a, a worry because if it, if the Delta variant persists while this Omicron wave goes through, it might actually emerge even more virulent. So, you know, but as uh, Henry or Irritable would tell us, uh, immunology is uh, complicated. Right. You know, it's just... Can I can I just make, a, yeah. make one point? So I, I think something uh, Marianne uh, said is very important, that she knows that her parents are triple vaccinated. Right. Mm -hmm. She knows that who she is visiting um, is, is taking this seriously, taking their health and the health of others seriously. You know, they, they got vaccinated. They uh, probably, I'm sure, wear quality masks when they go out in public. Um, they're taking precautions. Uh, if you know that your family is doing that, then sure, go visit them. Uh, if you know that your family contains people that are not doing those things. Or liars like mine. <laughs> well, you know, the, I have three siblings who are unvaccinated and are insisting on being that. And I'm just trying to convince one of them, like, look, you know, the, and he, this person even likes going to uh, Michael Ulsterholm's site because it's interesting. He does a weekly. But he is insistent. He said, look, this variant is going to find you. It is going to find you sooner or later. You can't, 
just hanging around even with vaccinated people. There's no herd immunity. You're not you're not you know, protected. And, and Professor John, to your point, yeah, if my parents weren't triple vaccinated, I wouldn't be here, even though I am. You know, so it's because I could give them the disease just as much as anybody else at this point, especially. I mean, you do, it, it is a much smaller load, and the casual transmission rate is lower, but when you're in a saturated situation, like in a house, for hours on end, it doesn't matter if you're 50% less loaded with the virus or 100%, you know, if, you, if you're exposed to it. You know, in other words, it doesn't matter if it's a half hour before you get it or an hour before you get it, you're in the house. It's a saturation-type situation. And... Um, you know, so let me ask you. I'm I'm not joking here. I'm out of my mind. Uh, I I've spent there were 12 years of my life spent in comedy clubs, 365 days a year. But I for 12 straight years I never left a comedy club. And so when I finally stopped being in comedy clubs. And being out among people, I went, oh, it's, you know, it's not so bad to just isolate and not be, like, I, I like not being around people. And, and so when I, re, I'm being serious. It's just, you know, I got it all out of my system. I don't think most people are like that. And one of the things that has occurred to me is the metaverse, this thing that Zuckerberg wants to build, where we put on our Oculus glasses, Apple's getting in on this, this is, we're we're not going to need human contact. We're we're going to. I see you shaking your head, Professor Ann Lee. In my mind, I'm buying into this idea, this terrifying idea, where it's kind of like Inception, where we can ignore the world, put on these glasses, and live in whatever universe we choose, and human interaction will be will be rewired so that we won't require what was human interaction. When, so when I see people, when I see people going out and sitting in traffic and flying, it makes me hopeful that Zuckerberg and the metaverse won't succeed, that they cannot do this to us. They can't rewire our brains. We're still going to be social animals who require reality, verifiable reality. Well, yes, yes and no. I mean, when you look at the failure of immersive environments like uh, uh, virtual worlds, such uh, like Second Life, for example, you know, you see also human um, human failings also come out. So on the one hand, there's, there was a movement, there still is, uh, a, a whole set of ideas about being able to teach immersively and, and to teach in an augmented reality, and, and that can be good. It, I think it's an incredible challenge to try and do it properly. But on the other hand, you have people constantly trying to play with the sort of informal economy of being in that world. And the reality, of course, and there's a good ad that's out right now, two guys playing each other with immersive goggles on, but they they both stop at some, some pause at some moment and don't realize that they're complaining 
through the wall to against each other. Mm. You know that their neighbor is is being too damn noisy. Right. And and and. And I think it's counterproductive relative to selling the the technology, but it is actually a reality. It is, it is like bowling alone in that sense. Um, so I, you know, I think that there are going to be incredible contradictions. And ultimately, with all due respect to material analysis, it's all to sell you 5G bandwidth. It's all about 5G bandwidth. It's the only way you can run that crap is with 5G. So it, it's just going to be pretty amusing. On the other hand, you have all these Trumpers who want to burn down 5G towers, so it might right. actually, you know, regulate itself. Do you? But in all seriousness, this is not like being futuristic. Do you worry that as the as the ocean as the Earth recedes and the ocean moves forward? that all we're going to be left is with virtual and alternative reality and we'll just embrace? No, I, I, I think Jeffrey Tubin has taught us that, you know, that there still is an analog reality that we live in. Yes. But I think that, I think your point is, is that all, there, more importantly, there is a physical reality. I mean, you know, unless we develop our psi powers, you know, kind of like on the level of cats, uh, that might take another, like, one or two million more years of evolution, we are going to require technology. We're going to require physical generation of energy to build factories, to build the stuff that allows us to have and, and 5G. You know, that's considerable amount of physical infrastructure. What it was? What do you say? Psi power? What is? What? What is? What did you say? Psi powers. What's that? Did you watch Babylon Five? I had a boyfriend who did. You know, there was Psychor, like the guy who played Chekhov in the original Star Trek was what was his name? He was like psi powers. Psi powers sounds like you know. You basically can use the Psychor. developed mental capacities that actually can you know have physical effects. And cats have that. Huh? And you're saying cats? Ca cats have that? Oh yeah, I'm sure they have that. I mean, they live in a whole new. <laughs> but they choose, you know, they're comfortable now, and we're doing all the work for them. So you uh -huh. know, why bother? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Koenig, yes, yeah. Walter Koenig. But what was his name? Uh, but Bester, Bester, or Bester, uh, or something yeah. like that. On yeah, on Babylon. Yeah. Professor Hussein. Do you worry about, like, three generations from now, humans being hardwired differently and they they just check out of reality? We do it. We do it with pot, alcohol, Netflix, games. I mean, humanity rears its ugly head, like in Gamergate. People can lose themselves in games, but then the the sexism and the horribleness of humanity sets in, but I mean, there there are going to be gated communities of alternate realities that will be better than yeah. Them. Everybody will have their own office hours uh, with some other group <laughs> that goes on forever and ever, and right. 
stuff too bad. Well, that would be one of those episodes of Twilight Zone that Professor John likes. Yeah. Oh my God, we could we should write one. But um, I mean, I guess I wonder. Um, obviously, the pandemic has already um, accelerated some of those effects, right? I mean, maybe kids, the younger generations, were always on their phones and you know felt more comfortable interacting through social media almost than they did in person. But now we feel uncomfortable. Um, in person, unless it's with close, intimate people, and we've done all the checks, we've taken our, you know, rapid tests, and we've been isolating, and we've been, you know, very careful. Then, you know, with people you're very close friends with or family, you can have some social time. But when you meet people in other social spaces um, that you don't know well, um, there's an awkwardness, I think, and even, you know, friendships, acquaintances that might have been warmer and there would have been more affection expressed. Uh, they've become kind of awkward because we're out of the habit and we're thinking about all the other unseen factors and nobody knows exactly, you know, how exactly to relate. Should you give a hug? Should you not? Should you handshake? Should you not? You know, uh, should you, you know, do the foot bump or the, you know, fist thing? You know, so, you know, everybody's trying to work out what is going to be appropriate. And so that's accelerated already, the awkwardness of live, face-to-face, social interaction, and has pushed us ever more into the online sphere, which has been a boom for Microsoft, for Zoom, for all of these uh, tech uh, companies. Um, who seem to be very invested in the transformation of the world into a virtual kind of terrain. Um, but I think, you know, I guess my question is, is uh, how different is online? I think there are real differences, but how different is online behavior, socially speaking, from other interactions? Already we had a very polemical um partisan sort of politics, factional uh, disputes. Um, I think that's gotten worse, but it's not like it wasn't already there. So I think it exacerbates tendencies that are there rather than being completely transformative. Um, so I don't know where it's going to be headed, but I do, I do, you know, hope that we will recover some public ground, some social comfort with one another again. Maybe I'm just, uh, you know, living in an obsolete uh, sense of, of reality. But I, I, well, we talked about it when we talked about um, teaching, you know, pedagogically. Yes, you can do a lot of great things online. I think you can use it as a tool to achieve certain ends, but there's something invaluable and irreplaceable to the in-person seminar discussion about, you know, critical readings and thinking together. I just think it doesn't, you know, isn't easily replaced. So if that is lost, uh, something important about human social engagement and how we've developed over millennia, you know, it's not easy to just suddenly hardwire. Maybe we're moving in, in a different, the evolution of the species. But if you push it too fast, it goes against things that we have already developed that we are comfortable with that does have value. Um, so I think we'll have to find the balance because I don't think we're going back completely. 
And, and, the, and the, the other, go ahead, Professor John. Yeah, I just wanted to say, let's not give up hope either. Uh, I, I think that we can get through this and, and you know, it doesn't mean that COVID is going to be around in its current form uh, forever necessarily that we we can develop vaccines that are more targeted uh to address say the omicron variant uh and other variants that may arise uh we we can develop more and more treatments there are two treatments um out there in the pill form uh that have some effectiveness uh so you know this we may get through this i i guess but we're know, not going to be the same Every, everything changes even if nothing had happened everything changes now there's been some kind of acceleration of change we're not going back to the way things were right right and and, and i think that can be a good thing yeah i right? agree uh people who do not need to be in an office should not be there all the commuting, all that pollution, all the wasted time, all the um, the uh, spending on unnecessary infrastructure, uh, you know, all the stress, all the all See, that to nonsense, me, expense. I, to me, it, it's almost as though it was an evolutionary imperative that we either for climate change because of climate change, or just for our own mental health and our survival. The, the 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 hamster wheel of our existence before covid we were we were going to die off if if it, if if some of us got some of us had to stop and just see what our life was because we were and we still are uh our lives are not good the gift of COVID, if you survive it, is to examine this idea of going to an office and just having your life drained out of you in an office for no purpose other than being controlled for money, where you can get that money by staying home and doing the same work. Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, people who have or who are able to work from home, uh, overwhelmingly, they uh, prefer it. There are so many advantages uh, to it. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't have to make public policy changes to uh, make it possible for more people to do it and for more people to uh, do it in a way that is conducive to having a family and, uh, you know, that the employer and the government should pick up some of these expenses um, that are uh, associated with uh, working um, remotely. But, the other thing uh, is, the other thing is that I'm not making a joke here. Uh, it's going to be bad for lawyers because 